Welcome to the Political Philosophy Podcast. I'm Toby Buckle. One quick update just before um, we get to this week's episode is um, with respect to the ideologies of the ancient series, I realise I've sort of been promising you the latest part for a while now, and it's not materialised. Um, honestly, here's what's going on with that. I got it finished, and I listened to it back. And I listened to it together with some of the earlier ones in that series, and I just wasn't happy with it. Um, I thought I really liked, if this isn't too immodest, the first parts, particularly the Cyrus one. I like was happy with what I put out there. And I think there's this thing where if I'm going to produce a three-hour podcast, I'm sort of making that this implicit claim that this is worth three hours of your time. And... I just sort of wasn't. Um, So I think I kind of need to go back to the drawing board on that and maybe rework it. Or, you know, honestly, maybe even just start it again um, and hit my sources again and try to get clearer. I know where I want to go with the series. Like, I can sort of see the overall arc of it and how it's going to end. Um, But, like, the exact details along the way, I'm not sure about. Or, like, I don't know. So I'm kind of like George R. R. Martin it a bit here, right? Um, so I think what's best is is if, if, if instead of saying, I'm going to have it by the state, I'm going to have it by the state, I let my, I, I just I renegade on those um, deadlines, essentially. It'll be ready when I think it's worth two and a half to three hours of your time. So I'm still going to finish that series. Um, and I guess referencing uh, uh, yeah, Martin um, gives me some hope that at least I'm not as tardy as that, right? Um, I'm still definitely committed to it. I've loved doing it. I think I just kind of, like, have whatever the podcaster's equivalent of writer's block here is. I'm just not getting the details as smooth as I, as, as I want them. And so I think it'll be for the best if I just say it'll be ready when it's, when it's ready, and I'll just drop it in the feed whenever it's done. I won't have it as a scheduled week's episode. So that's what's up with that. While I was working on that and interviews, I found myself sort of writing in my head another podcast episode, which is the one you're about to listen to. And I was sort of nervous about doing this one for reasons I'll explain, but I thought, okay, let's just um, see how this goes. And I thought, okay, what would it look like? And I sat down and I wrote out the episode. So some podcasters write out episodes word for word. I don't. I like to riff and talk off the cuff a little bit, but I sort of write out a structure and, like, the sort of facts and quotes that I want to get in there. And I just bashed it out in half an hour, just blitzed through it, and I realised, okay, I've clearly got a piece to say (laughs) on this. Um, I am a bit nervous about it, and I'm nervous for two reasons. One, the topic is race, and... It just sort of like, you know, what I don't want this to come across as is like, I think I know everything about like what it's like to be black and I'm here to explain to other white people like, you know, what I'm really not trying to do in this episode, and I say a few times, is I'm not trying to explain in this episode how black people feel to white people, although some of the analysis I do will necessarily involve talking about how black people feel. I am, you know, a young, white, liberal, progressive, talking to an audience, I imagine the majority of which is in that same category as well. Um, certainly, um, 
I, I, I do have non-white followers, and um, I would love your thoughts on this and what you think I'm getting right and wrong and so on. I'd love your feedback. Um, but, like, the conversation I'm having here is, like, a white person to other white people, and particularly white progressives, about, like, what I think we're getting wrong in terms of our, like, electoral strategy for reaching different demographic groups. And it's a conversation we need to have if we want progressive change in this country. But what I will say is, like, you know, the best way of, like, learning what black people feel about politics is to ask them about it, you know? And if you, you know, I talk a lot about older black voters in this, if you, you know, don't have any friends who are older black voters, well, one, maybe that's part of the problem, but two, go and just listen to exit interviews of voters online. There's loads of them out there. Like, just get a sense of what people feel and where they're coming from. There's no substitute for that, right? So, you know, I am a bit cautious there in that I don't want to be seen as speaking for black people and you know, taken out of context, some bits of this maybe could read like that, so I want to get that one out the way with first. I also want to say, you know, I've covered the issue of standpoint epistemology a, a, a lot on this show, which is the idea that some people's lived experience will sort of make them more aware of certain things than you, and I, I do think there's, there's validity to that, right? And I do think generally when talking about issues regarding race, um, white people should you know, listen uh, first, and I include myself in that. And I will say, you know, a lot of this, what I'm drawing from here, isn't really like me. I'm drawing from, you know, at this point I've got to have done um, two dozen hours of interviews um, about um, race and racism in the US with just, you know, really some of the the greats, the best people to talk to this, like Mary Frances Berry or Orlando Patterson or um, so on and so forth, right? Um, and in preparation for that, I had to read all their books, and look them up and so on. So, you know, I'm not coming at this just like, oh, woo, here are my thoughts off the cuff. Um, I'm sure I have more to learn about it. I don't think my opinions are infallible, certainly, and I'm sure there's, there's, there's sort of limitations on my understanding because of my lived experience as a white man, right? I'm not denying that. Um, but, like, it's not just coming out of nowhere. I'll also say this is a topic I've spent just a huge amount of time just talking to people about, like, on campaigns and with friends who've also done campaigns, and, you know, I think one of the reasons I could just bash out what I wanted to say in this episode in, like, half an hour was um, I've recently had some huge, like, five, six-hour conversations with people, like, just on this topic, and I'm actually going to thank a few people just quickly up front, just so that um, credit where it's due, you know? Um, so my friend Patrick Conway, who's uh, worked for just a long time on political campaigns in all sorts of demographics, uh, you know, districts and so on, um, and he's just very informed and up-to-date on this stuff. He's talked a lot of these ideas out with me. Uh, my friend uh, Arielle Newton, who's um, done a huge amount of activism um, with the Movement for Black Lives and has written a lot on... Um, this sort of stuff. Um, I've chatted to her a lot about it, and, you know, she's probably coming from, like, a more radical place than me, but, like, 
every time we have one of these big conversations, um, I learn something from it. Um, finally, um, my wife, uh, Irina, is someone who's obviously moved, uh, my thinking on race along. So, you know, I don't really mention this on the show ever. Um, so I'm in, I'm, um, in an interracial marriage, right? My wife's, uh, Dominican. She doesn't identify as black. I think she identifies as Afro-Caribbean. Um, and I don't sort of mention it, um, because I think sometimes white people in interracial relationships can kind of use it in a way that's a bit iffy, almost like I'm not racist, I have a black friend sort of thing, and I just kind of don't want to to come across as that. But, you know, um, obviously being um, with Arena for so long, uh, we've talked about race and racism and her experiences of it um, a great deal, and that's moved my thinking on a lot. Um, so I just wanted to quickly thank those people. So I was, like I say, a little bit nervous about this one, um, but I sort of decided, like, you know, I, I clearly have a piece to say on this, um, and I think it's a really important topic for um, the future of the progressive movement on this country. So, you know, I'm going to say my piece, and if people think I'm getting it wrong, then I welcome that feedback. Like I say, I'm sure there's ways my perspective is shaped by my experience, uh, sort of lived experience in this world, um, and I will not at all take it the wrong way if someone wants to try and uh, point that out. I welcome it, in fact. Um, so let's get to this episode. This is kind of a sequel to an earlier solo episode I did called uh, Warren Sanders and the Future of the Left. Um, and I say at the end of that one, in sort of breaking down what happened in the Sanders campaign, we are going to have to talk about um, why he either, depending on your point of view, he failed to win the black vote, or Joe Biden so decisively locked it up. Um, and I sort of decided it was already a long episode, and the topic needed kind of... The, the topic was challenging enough that it needed an entire solo episode just to do it. So this is that episode, essentially. And I would recommend listening to them both together. So if you haven't heard that one yet, maybe go back and check that out, or check it out after you listen to this one. Because that kind of gives both sides of the Sanders campaign narrative for me, and I think this will round out the analysis I've done of the of that primary election. In the, in the first one I did, I think I gave a largely sympathetic view of Sanders, and I talked about, like, what are the sort of structural and ideological reasons that he gained the support he did, and why did people buy into that campaign. In this one, I'm talking about why people didn't buy into his campaign. And one of the points I make is, although I, I use this question of race as, like, a framing device, I actually don't think a lot of the issues... Um, that's made Sanders struggle with particularly older black voters are actually unique to black people. I think there there's a number of things that went wrong for him in general, some of which might apply especially to black people. Um, so anyway, I recommend listening to them both together because you'll kind of get the the good, the bad, and the ugly that way, and I think that'll give you like a much more three dimensional view. Of, uh, of what's going on here. And just finally, 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 I will say, Christ, you can tell I'm, like, giving you all the provisos and whatever before we get to this one. Um, I know a lot of people in my audience felt very passionately about Sanders. I am in no way dismissing that or disrespecting it. 
um, this is a conversation about what we can learn and how we can win next time. But with that said, like, if you're, you know, I think it's going to be necessary for us to do quite a big autopsy of what happened and learn from it for next time. You might not be ready for that conversation yet, and that's fine. And particularly with this episode, if you're still in a place where you're hurting over Sanders' loss, and I'm not disrespecting that, like, I've worked a lot of elections, losses hurt, they really do, right? Um, but if you're not in that place yet, I think I've got myself to that place um, now. But, like, if you're not in that place, give this one a miss. You know, plenty of other stuff on my podcast, right? So, and, like, fair warning, this one I was quite nice about Bernie in the last one. This one I'm really critical, and I don't hold back, and I say this is this is how, we, you know, we really were, like making our lives a lot harder than they had to be. I think it's important to say that, because, you know, if you don't recognise your mistakes, you can't learn from them. But I say it, and I pull no punches. So if you're not ready for that conversation, you know, no worries at all. Don't go forward with this episode. If you are, let's have that talk. And you might not like a lot of what I have to say here. You don't have to, right? This is just where I'm at with it. And like I say, we're all learning and evolving, and I don't think, especially on the topic of, like, race, right? I don't claim to know everything or think my thinking is perfect. But, you know, I have worked in politics for a long time. I have spent a few years interviewing world experts on it, and I have spent a lot of time just, like, talking to people about it. And this is where my thinking is at. I don't claim any more than that. There will be people out there whose thinking is a lot further on than me. And I think, you know, there is some truth to the standpoint epistemology idea, certainly when it comes to thinking about race, white people are probably coming from behind. I think men are probably coming from behind thinking about gender and so on and so forth, right? So I don't want to set myself up as some absolute authority here, merely just someone who has been interested in these sorts of issues for a while now. And um, I don't claim that uh, my take is final or definitive in any kind of way, and I'm happy to... Um, I, you know, I always like feedback. Give me feedback you know, on any of my episodes if you want to send me an email or stuff. I always like hearing from people. Um, so that actually just not specific to this one. Uh, that just goes in general. Okay, um, I think I did enough uh, setting this up. Let's get straight to it. This is um, just a solo episode of me continuing my analysis of the ideological forces in the 2020 Democratic primary. <laughs> demographic breakdown of which particular groups voted for which specific candidates in the 2020 Democratic primary for president. There's a lot of big demographic divides there, but the two that really jump out at you are age and race. So it's pretty robust at this point that Bernie Sanders really just hoovered up the votes of younger voters 
and basically just collapsed totally in support from seniors, with middle-aged people being somewhere in between. The other big one that a lot of ink has been spilled over is race. Biden just seemed to get the black vote locked up early, and really never, nobody else could make encroachments into that ground. So, what's going on here now? Obviously, those variables overlap, you know, to the extent Sanders and Warren as well, actually, were able to um, attract black voters. They tended to be younger black voters. So, the race variable doesn't occur in a vacuum. It interacts with all sorts of other identities people have. And also, of course, as I've said many times, black people in this country are not a monolith. You have tens of millions of individuals with all of the internal variation that you would expect in a group of that size. And for that reason, when we look at this question of um, why the black vote went the way it did in the primary, which is, which is hugely consequential for progressives, because if we want to be in a position where we can win primaries on a national level like this. This is something that we're going to have to put serious thought into. But for that reason, that it is a complex issue, it does relate to other variables, and there isn't just one caricature you can impose and say, this is the black voter, and, you know, these are their interests, and what they would want to hear in order to vote for a progressive. I think it makes sense to look at this from a number of different angles. And that's what I'm going to do here. Now, normally when I try and look at something from different angles, I start from theory and work through to practice. I set up some different methodological frameworks and sort of say, what, what do these say? Um, for this, I'm going to do it the other way around. And I'm going to start with some specific narratives that um, have emerged, and I'm going to sort of tell you what I think of them, and then draw out from that um, some sort of general theoretical conclusions. And I think I'm going to start with narratives that I don't find particularly um, convincing. So there's three accounts of why black Democrats, both in 2016 and 2020, have decisively gone towards the sort of quote-unquote more moderate establishment candidate over a progressive challenger. Um, there's three theories that get bandied around a lot that I think aren't particularly compelling. Um, the first one is that within the Democratic Party, black voters are now more ideologically conservative than white voters. There's a few bits of evidence that get picked up on here, but the most sympathetic read I could give it would be something like this. Um, because black people in America are almost uniformly Democrats, you know, in a system that wasn't so structured by race, there's a lot of black conservatives who otherwise might be Republicans but are now Democrats, whereas white people within the Democratic Party are sort of definitionally the most liberal white people in the society. So we're kind of comparing apples to oranges. We're saying all black people, or almost all black people who are Democrats, versus the most liberal white people. Well, there might be some elements of truth in that. Um, most people I've talked to who, you know, have worked in, in, in sort of black organising for a long time, 
um, they just reject this narrative. What a lot of people have said to me is, um, we, well, we meaning black people, aren't really measurable on the same ideological spectrum as white people. We sort of have our own ideological spectrum. And when you look at the overall opinions of um, black democratic voters, this really does not read to me as a, um, as a sort of um, heavily conservative um, group. So I'm just going to give you a few figures from the Black Census Project that did a survey of 30,000 um, uh, black people in the States. Now, I think it can be misleading to get into specific things like, you know, support for Medicare for all stuff. Let's just take broad value statements. So, government should provide adequate housing for people who lack it. Um, 87% of the surveyed uh, black people agreed with that statement. Uh, government should provide affordable and quality health care for all Americans. 90% support. Government should address the gap between rich and poor. 86%. Um, and then even, you know, when you get down to, you know, more specific policies like a $15 an hour minimum wage that has 87% uh, support. Um, so this this is not reading to me as conservatives who are reluctantly dragged into the Democratic Party because our politics is racially divided. This is reading to me as a population of people who, you know, with some exceptions, but overwhelmingly favour a progressive egalitarian politics. And, and even the issues that people can point to where black voters on average or on aggregate or the median black voter is more conservative than the median white democratic voter. I don't think race is what's causing that. So the one that always gets cited is um, on concerns, objections to gay marriage are somewhat higher among black democrats than white democrats. Well, even taking that result as writ, I... My feeling is that race isn't the key explanatory variable there. The explanatory variable would probably be something like levels of religiosity. So religious people tend to be more against gay marriage. Um, secular people tend to be almost uniformly for it. And if it happens to be the case for historical reasons, which it is, that levels of religiosity are higher among black people, then yeah, you will probably see... Uh, you know, slightly higher levels of opposition to gay marriage, but that's nothing really to do with blackness, I don't think. Or if it is, it's a very long story that needs to be told about, you know, why is black America um, more religious, not than America as a whole, but than sort of white liberal America. And, that's a conversation you can have, but I don't I don't think this sort of blanket statement that black Democrats are just more conservative really carries the day there. And especially when you get into the 2020 primary, um, Bernie Sanders was not really running on culture wars issues. Like, yes, he supports gay marriage, but so does Joe Biden, you know? Um, that, But that wasn't what he was talking about. Bernie Sanders was by and large talking about this economic populism, egalitarian message, which on paper seems to be something that black Democrats overwhelmingly support. And overall, 
you know, the broad thrusts of what Sanders is trying to do in the world is something that is overwhelmingly popular with black Americans. So I think this analysis that, that like, you know, white people have gotten out of their head and are just some... It's often accompanied, again, in this sort of culture war rhetoric that black... Sorry, white, whiny liberals are now even more concerned about race than black people are. Um, and I just don't really see much evidence to say that that's true. So that's the, the first narrative I um, want to get out the way with that I just don't really buy. Um, another one... Um, I'm going to try and be careful about how I talk about this as someone who is on Twitter way too much, um, is that it was like online nastiness that, um, as Joe Biden wonderfully termed them, the Bernie brothers. That's something Biden said. Um, I do love that neither Biden or Bernie seem to be really aware of what the internet is. Um, it's, it's actually quite refreshing in contrast to Trump. But anyway, the narrative would be that Sanders supporters are so vitriolic and unpleasant online that, um, maybe racist even, right, that black voters who might, as I've said, seemingly be very sympathetic to the broad ideological thrusts of the platform, that they were put off. Um, specifically with the variable of race, um... I, I just feel like that's not the main thing that's going on here. I think if you were to start talking about gender and some of like the attacks on Warren and so on, I thought there was a sexist undertone there. I think, you know, if you're talking about online nastiness as a key variable, I think that's probably going to do more work when talking about, you know, why, say, younger... Um, women, perhaps, were going to Warren as opposed to Bernie. But even then, you know, it's not a huge percentage of Americans who use Twitter regularly, and that demographic skews overwhelmingly towards younger Americans. So I just don't think when, you, you know, you're looking at like the older black voters in South Carolina who revitalised Biden's candidacy. Um, it just doesn't seem plausible to me that this is a demographic that's heavily concerned with the Twitter wars. That that doesn't seem right to me. Um, I think it's um, probably much more likely the case that it's more what Bernie Sanders supporters were saying than the sort of level of nastiness with with um, which it might have been um, expressed online. And beyond that, it's actually dubiously true that Bernie Sanders has uniquely unpleasant um, supporters. So it's like, I always try to go to data. So I was like, is, is this actually true? And there's one study that found that actually, um, for Bernie Sanders supporters on Twitter, they actually don't express negative sentiments at a higher rate than the supporters of, you know, other candidates do. It's just that there's more of them. Like, there's just much more Bernie Sanders supporters on Twitter than there are Biden supporters or even, you know, Warren supporters or whatever, which again makes sense. This is a young demographic. So it can kind of feel like there's a lot of um, negativity coming from Bernie world, but that's just because they're disproportionately represented on social media. And I was like, huh. You know, that kind of makes sense to me. Now, the thing with that study is that it didn't really measure what was being said negatively, just the rates at which negative comments were coming out. Um, and I think it's the what 
really that, that sort of matters here. It's not that they were rude online, it's the narratives that they were furthering in, in their in their um in their rudeness. Um, the final one I want to get out of the way with, um, which can sound a little bit patronising and um, insulting, but I'll just sort of name it directly. And I'm not saying all progressives say this, but I think that is, is sometimes at like the edge of someone's voice. This sort of idea from a lot of young white progressives when they sort of talk about this issue, which is black voters didn't go for Bernie Sanders because they're not politically informed. And the sort of um, idea would be something like, you know, black people just don't know what Bernie Sanders stands for and they don't realise that these politics would help him and that it's sort of their own damn fault. Now, for one thing, that's just not a very nice thing to say, but like, effort, let's just go for it. Is it true? Um, no. Um, you know, it will depend what question you're asking. There's things white people are going to know more about and things black people are going to know more about. But broadly sort of looking at political engagement, um, you know, in spite of all the sorts of um, voter repressions and whatnot that we have, black people vote at almost the same rate as white people, and much more than white people, um, they are engaged in electoral activities and political activism beyond voting. So the same study I cited by the Black, Congre uh, the Black uh, Census Project um, found that 34% of black Americans um, both voted and engaged in electoral activities. That is way higher. Like, I was looking at some other estimates um, for white Americans, and they vary quite a bit, but the highest one I was able to find was 28%, and some of the lower ones were, like, 12 So, black Americans are as engaged, and in some ways much more engaged with politics, than white Americans, and anyone who's done, like, a lot of canvassing of, like, um, black neighbourhoods, which I have, um, anyone, you know, you sometimes get white organisers who don't want to go into black neighbourhoods, and they say, oh, these people don't know anything, and whatever, and, you know, that's just not where the gettable votes are, and, you know, that is racism talking. Um, some of the best, you know, I have knocked on tens of thousands of doors at this point, um, some of the best, most engaged, most reasonable and responsive and back-and-forth conversations you will have are with older black voters who, like, you know, may not be high-income or, like, you know, have a fancy education and so on, but they stay up-to-date with politics, and particularly they stay up-to-date with local politics. In a way, even the sort of hyper-political Bernie brothers on Twitter just don't. Like, I think, you know, if I've got young, online, politically engaged white guy on the one hand versus 67-year-old um, living on a fixed income in Brooklyn, a uh, black woman, um, and I've got to bet which one of them will be able to tell me who their state senator is, I'm going with older black lady every day 
as the person I think most likely to know the answer to that question. So, and, and there's historical reasons for that, right? Like, we are only a few generations out of apartheid and segregation in this country for a lot of older black Americans, again, not all, and I'm, you know, I, there's always the risk of stereotype with this, but for a lot of older black Americans, being politically enfranchised is something they had to fight for. Certainly their parents and grandparents had to fight for. It's within lived experience gaining access to the formal mechanisms of enfranchisement. So they take it really seriously. And, you know, again, at this point, I have to have had hundreds of conversations, you know, with the exact types of voters who young white liberals can sneer at and say, well, they just don't understand about Bernie Sanders' platform. And, you know, the overwhelming majority of those conversations um, just attest to how seriously they take this. And, you know, every word they say and how they say it attests to how seriously they take this. So... Those are, like, my narratives that I don't think really work. I don't think it is the case that black Democrats are now, like, more conservative than white Democrats. Um, you can cherry-pick the data a bit, but I think the, overall, the sort of overall thrust of what's happening here isn't that. I think probably um, online nastiness didn't help Bernie's campaign, but I think the fact that... Um, you know, people were mean on Twitter, I don't think was is the main thing that was going on with the black-white voting gap. I think it might have something to do with what was going on with the gender gap, particularly among young people, but um, it, it wouldn't make my top five list of um, causal variables here. Um, and finally, this idea, and it can be expressed in overt ways, and it can sort of be expressed in a sort of subtle ways about what do we need to do to sort of educate these voters. But the idea that um, um, black voters are lower information absolutely flies in the face of every bit of data I've been able to find on this, and just years of experience doing races in majority black neighbourhoods. Um, so I just, I just don't find that particularly compelling. And I think, you know, I, I was looking at some sort of surveys about black political opinion in preparation for this. And one thing that gets said again and again and again is um, black people saying that politicians talk at them and not to them. And, you know, I think this is an instance where, you know, progressives are guilty of that. They're not the only ones guilty of that. That's probably true in different ways for groups across the political spectrum, right? But I think you know, we are guilty of that on our side of the house as well. And I don't know, I just sort of wince at this talk of, like, educating black voters about Bernie Sanders' platform, um, as opposed to, like, engaging them with it. And, like, I don't know, I just think it's, it's one, a bit of a problematic, if I can use that word. It's a bit of a problematic way of looking at things. And two, it's just not true. Okay, so if those are some narratives that I think don't hold up, well then what does? Because 
there's clearly is this divide within the National Democratic uh, primary electorate. Um, so what's going on here? Now, a lot of the analysis I'm about to give you, um, virtually none of which is original to me, but a lot of the analysis I'm going to give you um, revolves around group identity, it revolves around questions of trust and feeling and narrative framing and rhetoric. Now, what I don't want you to take away from this is that what I'm saying is that black voters are motivated by symbolic concerns and progressives are, you know, white progressives are motivated by policy concerns. That's not what I'm saying at all. I think both groups are motivated by symbolic and rhetorical concerns. Um, white people no less than black people. All of us approach politics through lenses of identity, through ideological framings, through rhetorical and narrative framings. That's just a fact about how human beings process their engagement with the, with the political. Um, now, in saying that, it did sort of occur to me, am I going to try and make all of this about narrative and ideology? Um, and I sort of challenged myself, and I thought, well, is... I th and I think it mostly is about that. But, like, I challenged myself, and I thought, well... Could I, is there a sort of rational self-interest theory for this divide? And I realised that obviously there was. And I will say, I've tried this narrative out on a few people, white and black, and generally neither of them are buying it. So take it with a pinch of salt. But I think there's some element of truth to this. And the sort of rational self-interest theory would go like this. Why, you know, the young white progressive might say, are... are um, you know, older black people not voting for this program, which is clearly in their economic self-interest, because Bernie would do all these wonderful things. Well, um, for one thing, those black voters might be factoring in um, risk. They might be factoring in electability. Now, I'm going to come to electability in a minute, but you don't have to buy this idea that Bernie is fundamentally unelectable and that he's a surefire um, loser in the general election. I don't think that's true, actually. I think Bernie would have been a perfectly viable candidate in the general election. Um, what is true is that he's more of a risk. We've never run a self-described socialist for president before. And I think if we had done it, those fears would have proved to be a little overblown. But I don't know that. Um, it is just a risk. It's a sort of higher variance probability type thing, right? Well, okay, but that's, that's true for everyone. Why should... What, what rational reason is there for uh, black voters to be especially concerned about that fact? Well, if you think about this through, like, rational self-interest, game theory type of perspective, um, as decision-making under uncertainty, and we just apply a sort of expected value model to it, while it is true, or, you know, it is my assessment that um, everyone in America would benefit from the sort of democratic socialist platform that Bernie Sanders is advancing, um, I think those gains would come somewhat unevenly. I think a lot of Bernie Sanders' platform sounds like universal programs, but would actually disproportionately benefit young white people. Case in point, all the stuff about student loans. Now, if you are the sort of typical Bernie Sanders supporter, i.e., um, 
a young white person living in a big city, something like student loans, something like college tuition, is a huge concern. If you are an older black voter living in the South, now, it's still a concern, you know, you might want to make sure your grandchildren or whatever are set up right economically, but it's not as immediately relevant to your own sort of rational self-interest, right? And there's a lot of stuff like that, even something like healthcare, you know, tends, you know, it tends to be young people who are uninsured. And then obviously older people have government programs that will support them. So again, a lot of these sort of programs skew young, and I think skew white, although that effect is more subtle, right? Now, that doesn't mean that, like, older black voters wouldn't benefit from those programs. I think they would. And if you think, and if you look at opinion polling, they're not against them. But it's just maybe not as immediate a concern. But at the same time, those older black voters have more to risk. I think Trump is a racist, right? I think that's pretty uncontroversial to say. I mean, pretty much every word out the man's mouth testifies to that fact. Um, and I think it's, it's, it's not just a symbolic concern. I think having this racist as president has emboldened racists everywhere in the country, and um, it's made Republican politicians, a lot of whom I feel are just, like, completely cynical hacks who just want to say whatever they need to say to get to the next office or to stay elected or to just get through the next news cycle, right? And if Donald Trump had been resoundingly defeated in 2016, I think... Republican politicians would have taken the message away that, okay, racism's an electoral loser. Now that he's won, and especially if he wins again, I think a lot of them, and you're seeing this in the sort of so-called Trumpification of the Republican Party, have taken the message, oh, racism's an electoral winner, which either gives them an excuse to vent the racist feelings they always had, or tells them, okay, we'll just use them cynically, both of whom, which are incredibly damaging to our social fabric, and both of which only embolden the racists amongst the population. So everyone is damaged by Trump, but I think you can say that white people are damaged less, they're less affected. Black people have more at risk. And so again, to just bring it back to rational self-interest, you're placing a gamble, right? And you're doing a sort of expected utility calculation. Now, surely it stands to reason that the people who risk the least by that gamble and benefit the most are going to be most enthusiastic about it, right? Um, say, just for instance, not even, the, you know, just that Bernie is a bigger unknown, right? Who rationally would be more tolerant of that risk? Well, probably the people who who don't have to put up as much and will get a bigger payout. On the other side, who's going to be most iffy about taking that risk? People who have to put up a lot, a lot, really have to, you know, sink the burden in. And will gain, not nothing, but less. I think that's quite rational. Don't you? Now, a lot of people will quibble the details of that, and people have when I've brought it up, but the sort of common sense way of saying this 
is, I don't think this is exactly how black voters were thinking about it, but there is a sort of logic here, right? And they, they, they could say, look, you're asking me to risk a lot, more than you are, for programs that will tend to benefit you. Forgive me if I'm not very enthusiastic about that. Now, to be fair, I don't think that's the main thing that's going on. Um, but I say it only to say that, yes, I think politics is about symbolism and narrative and emotion and group identity more than it's about a rational assessment. But it's not as if there's not a rational assessment story that you could tell. And there's kind of a, a blindness on the part of progressives about the fact that when we try to court black support, we are asking people to take a risk, which they would, they, they, we're asking them to take more of a risk than we are ourselves. And something about that dynamic has to shift in the future. So I mentioned risk there, and one of the big narratives that's um, come out of this primary is that black voters were more risk-averse than white voters. And what I've tried to sort of argue there is if you want to do that sort of rational self-interest analysis, there are rational reasons why black people would be more risk-averse. It's not, it's not something like innate about blackness, right? I think that sort of brings us on to this topic of electability, and th this is something that has coloured the entire um, primary, and I think it has affected this dynamic that I'm talking about in this episode. And here's sort of the 50,000-yard uh, view from on high about, like, what I think has sort of happened in this primary. I think very, you know, broad-brush statement, you can kind of divide political actors in the Democratic Party up into two camps. One is people who are super engaged and really into it and get hung up on, you know, small differences and so on. Um, you know, the online Twitter crowd definitely falls into this, professional politicians, people who write columns, whatever, right? The other of whom are like voters who sort of follow it, but, you know, they're nowhere near as invested in this minutia. Now, I think what happened in the Democratic primary is that that first group, the, like, hyper-political people, they essentially had a lot of unfinished business from 2016. They had really fallen out in a very acrimonious way on the Clinton v. Sanders thing. And there's sort of this conversation they've been wanting to have, which has kind of been pushed to one side amidst the horror and the buffoonery of Trump's um, presidency, which is... You know, is the Democratic Party going to move in a much more overtly progressive direction? Are we going to move in a direction that puts big government interventions to help the people at the bottom? You know, are we going to put that at the heart of the Democratic primary? Are we going to continue with um, the sort of third-way type approach, the consensus and compromise approach um, that was perhaps typified by Clinton and Obama? So this is big like round two of the fight that's been brewing and i think because hillary lost both sides have sort of been waiting to have a rematch like i think 
you know, the Clinton people obviously won in 2016, but um, I think a lot of the Bernie people from that argument felt that the fact that she ultimately lost to Trump was sort of a validation of their point. And once they get round two, once they get round two, everyone's going to see that they were right all along. And I think the sort of more Clinton, Biden, whatever wing still thinks they, they were ultimately correct. I think they would say something like, well, we probably would have won if those Bernie or Busters would have just got on board, right? So there's a big, nasty, acrimonious fight that's sort of waiting to happen about the future ideological direction of the party. The problem is, as we get into the, the, the 2020 Democratic primary, it turns out the actual voters, the people who aren't really, you know, invested in, like, exactly what's on the policy platform, it turns out they don't want to have that conversation. They want to have a conversation about who's going to beat Trump, which is not an irrational preference to have, right? And so, in a weird way, what we had is the one conversation about ideology sort of got pushed through the filter of this other conversation about electability. And the sort of highly informed people weren't willing to give up the chance for round two, which so many of them on both sides had cl clearly been salivating over, but they found that they had to make the arguments in a different way. They, they, so instead of saying, we need a social democratic platform because it's the right thing to do, or, you know, we need a sort of more market-based approach because actually, hey, that's what works, and, you know, regulated capitalism produces a lot of goods, and, you know, that wasn't the conversation we ended up having. We ended up having, having the conversation of one side saying, we need a um, democratic socialist platform because what Trump has shown us is that centrism always loses, and if we run another neoliberal shill sellout, we'll lose again, and we need the energy and enthusiasm of young people. That whole narrative. And then the other side saying, oh my god, if we run someone who supports Medicare for all, You'd best believe we'll lose the election in a landslide. And the, the funny thing about it is because they weren't having the conversation that they wanted to have, both sides ended up constructing a set of arguments that are almost uniformly false. Everything they were saying about this was wrong. Or at least, let me be more cautious about that, not validated by political science research and what we do know from past elections and um, uh, data, right? And it kind of then took on a life of its own, where people got really invested in these arguments about the turnout of different demographic groups that were patently wrong. But, like, that's, like, the conversation that they've been forced to have. And then they became really invested in that conversation. Um, so I won't do this in depth, but why is it wrong? Well, on the, sort of, Biden side of things, the idea that having a, you know, somewhat more progressive uh, policy platform is a sure electoral loser, there's some evidence for that, but it's thin and the effect is small. So. The data is, and this is from looking at congressional races, that, you know, more ideologically extreme candidates do cost their party votes. But it's a small effect. It's maybe 2, 3, 4%, something like that. It's not huge. Now, that might be enough to tip a close election, I hear you say. Except that effect has been declining. And it's probably been declining because of partisanship. And you can see this in this election. 
people's opinions on Trump are very locked in at this point, right? There's not really that many true swing votes left anymore. And, you know, I think policy matters if it's like left-wing versus right-wing, but when it comes to different variants of left-wing, I'm actually, you know, not sure it's as relevant a factor as, like, candidate quality or, like, um, sort of the appeal of um, just how good a campaign you ran or that sort of thing. Right? And so this idea that Bernie, you know, if we run someone with this platform, we lose, is I think just wrong because that's not the primary thing electorates assess their politicians on. It's not. And even people who are super into policy, I guarantee you, if I took Joe Biden's policy on unions and Bernie Sanders' policy on unions and printed them up and took the names out, I don't think you'd be able to tell them apart. They're both actually quite good on unions, which is why I use that example. But I don't think even strongly political people are that invested in the minutiae of policy. Now, it might be the case that um, a a particularly unpopular policy like replacing employer-based insurance might have an effect at the very margin. But I think... Yeah, the democratic establishment, if I can use that term, had really convinced themselves that uh, Bernie would just sink the ship. And I don't think that was right at all. On the other hand, the bloody Bernie people believed some utterly fantastical things about how turnout works and how coalitions work. And their whole thought was that we don't need to do the the coalition building thing. You know, youth turnout will carry us. And the argument is, if we get a... You know, the argument is that, like, um, people are dissatisfied with both parties, which is true to a degree, but not for the reasons that they think. And that if we merely had a strongly left-wing enough platform, all of these non-voters, particularly young non-voters, would just come in and be brought into the party, and, you know, a a lot of us, you know, just said at the time, this doesn't make any sense, and what people heard me saying, because like I say, we filtered the ideology conversation through the electability conversation, what they heard me saying was, people shouldn't have healthcare, which like, I mean, listen, my position on healthcare is the NHS, I think it should be directly provided by the government, but... You know, it's perfectly compatible to think that and also think that this electoral argument that Bernie was making, that it's all about young people and energy and enthusiasm and any potential swing voters we might lose will make up tenfold in all of these young people we're bringing in. Um, we, anyone who knows about, like, the the literature on turnout knows that wasn't what's going to happen. There are things that affect turnout, like the closeness of the election, the ideological differences between the two parties, um, just overall access to voting. This all influences turnout. There's not a lot of evidence that policy platforms influence turnout, for the reason that most people who don't vote do so more from a place of apathy than extreme ideological indignation about this whole theory about the neoliberal elite. And I've said this a few times, I think Bernie mistook a sort of apathy with the political system and a distrust of it for a much more specific set of ideological commitments that actually are 
quite narrow in terms of their appeal to the electorate. And the other thing is this idea that everything revolves around young voters. I was talking to a family member in the UK, and I sort of explained, she was like, oh, I didn't, I thought Bernie would do okay, what happened to him? And I was like, so he had this huge theory about, like, this surge in turnout of, like, young voters, and she just laughed, and she was like, well, don't, don't base your whole plan around young voters, um, which she is herself, and it's like, yeah, like, obviously, everybody knows this. Like, young people just are not a big share of the electorate. They turn out at really low rates. And, like, I feel like I'm going to have this carved on my tombstone at this point. <laughs> like, you can't win an election with just young people. You can't win a primary. You can't win a general. Now, like I say, I don't think Bernie would have been as unelectable in the general as people have it, but he would have been electable because I think most Democrats would vote for... I think most Democrats would vote for a randomly selected American over Donald Trump. Like, you know, I think some people would moan about him. I think that, you know, maybe a few swing voters would peel off, maybe a few more young people come in, but the effect is marginal. And, you know, like, I hate to... No, I don't hate to say I told you so, but I told you so. I said this about Corbyn. Like, there are just not enough young voters in the electorate for this sort of strategy to make any sort of sense whatsoever. And this isn't an ideological point. I think young people have been shut out of our system. I think young people's voices don't carry as much weight as they should. I think it is understandable and legitimate that young people are pissed off. I think, you know, young people, I talked about this on my last one of these, have been born into an economy that doesn't quite have a place for them. All of that's true. I'm just looking at numbers, and I'm looking at, how many young voters are there? How much could we realistically expect that turnout to increase as a basis, on the basis of policy differences? And it's just a type 1 error. Like, like, one number is just a lot bigger than the other number, and it's not even close. And, you know, when the sort of youth turnout surge fails to materialise for Bernie, <laughs> I mean, yeah. Because, look, what tools does your campaign really have to reach all of those non-voters? I mean, you can knock on their doors, but you're only reaching small percentages of the electorate doing that. You can run ads, and ads do make some difference. You know, you can do your online stuff, but again, you know, are the people we need to reach really following politics Twitter? I don't know that they are, right? And so both sides became deeply committed to these narratives that I think basically didn't make any sense. And you see that now, where a lot of the people in Bernie world really struggle to wrap their head around the fact that Biden's leading Trump quite comfortably. Because they'd convinced him themselves that he was sure to be unelectable. Now, if there is a difference to be had here... I sort of suspect, it's just, just my hunch, I sort of suspect that Bernie and Biden probably would end up getting about the same number of votes in the general. If there is an edge to Biden, it's, I think, that his votes are better distributed. He does comparatively better with old people, Bernie does comparatively better with young people. And old people tend to live in places like Florida, where their votes matter. Now, that's just sort of a quirk of our electoral system, but that's about as close as I can come to it. Now, how does all of that relate to race? Well, I think actually this is an instance 
and I think this is going to go for a lot of what I say, where it's not that, that like, black people are, like, fundamentally different in how they're approaching politics than white people. It's just concerns that everyone had, they had more so. So, this was an election in which the number one question on the primary electorate's mind was who's going to beat Donald Trump. And for, you know, the reasons we've discussed, it was especially on black people's minds. Now, I've already said, I think the sort of um, electability arguments that both sides made weren't very good. I don't think they were on, you know, the face of it, very good arguments. But I think Biden made a bad argument better. He just communicated it better. I think the idea of, like, we go with the safe choice, I think that resonated with a lot of people. And I think Bernie's argument just sort of sounded fantastical, because it was. Now, I've already said, I don't think, you know, the the, the, the actually electability gap was that big. We'll never know, but I, I just think that the idea that a, a centrist can never win and we need all of these young people to vote, otherwise we're doomed. Just, like, young people don't vote, period, <laughs> you know? <laughs> like, it just wasn't a good argument. Um, but I think that argument just didn't impress people. I think that, that, like, they didn't succeed on the electability front, and partly for, like, ideological reasons. They were sort of, because they have this, like, anti-establishment narrative, they were sort of committed to this idea, even though there are other ways they could have argued for their electability, um, and other sort of strategies they could have used that I think probably would have worked for them better. But the idea of coalition building is sort of inimical to this idea of, like, an outside takeover of the party that motivated so many of Sanders' strongest supporters. But, again, if people are assessing you based on how well you communicate an electability argument, I just think Bernie didn't do very well. I think Warren didn't do very well on that front either. I think... You know, she had one or two strong answers in the debates about electing women, but, like, overall, you know, if the question is, why are you the best person to beat Donald Trump, I don't think either of them did a very good job with that. Now, that applies to all voters, right? Not all voters, but the majority of the electorate this time. But I think it applies even more so to black voters. And so if that's right, what sort of vote distribution would you expect? You'd expect Bernie Sanders' strongest supporters who are invested in that narrative to show up for him, but generally speaking, most other people not to, and particularly black people not to, which is essentially what you saw. And so I think that that, that goes a long way in covering a lot of this. You know, now that might be different in future cycles. In future cycles, we might be talking about something other than electability, but that was the thing we were talking about this time. So that's the electability arguments. And like I say, I think Biden, I think both of them had bad arguments, but I think Biden ended up making his better. Um, I think there's another respect where Biden communicated better. Um, and that's, you know, you, you have to keep this in mind, right? And this is something people... Um, I talk to about this who are, you know, really knowledgeable about black political history, always stress. And it's like, it's so obvious, but like, it's, it's apparently, you know, so easy for us white liberals to forget, is black peoples in many parts of this country, political participation in terms of voting is a comparatively modern thing. You know, especially in the South, which is where Biden's black vote was strongest. 
black people's inclusion in this political pro in, in in our political processes that happened within living memory now there was always black politics there was always black political institutions like community organizations and the church um and those institutions had to be sort of grafted onto the institution of the democratic party and the democratic party has evolved a very specific way of talking to black voters and messaging to them and activating them and listening to their concerns that is quite different to how it talks to white voters. And I think there was a part of the progressive campaigns um, in this cycle that sort of just didn't really get that. And to the extent that they sort of realised that they needed to be ideologically bilingual, they needed to sort of be able to speak another political language, they assumed that that language was the language of sort of intersectionality, the language of talking about privilege and appropriation and all of those concepts which we're familiar with, right? Now, I think that is a good language to know, and I think it's a language that will activate a lot of um, younger people of colour, particularly like highly informed, politically engaged people of colour. Um, but that's not the only political language you need to speak, because, let's be real, the intersexual, intersectional language, that's a sort of word game, that's a form of discourse that really quite a small percentage of the population is familiar with. And, you know, Black people are not a monolith, and just being able to say, you know, I confess my white privilege, that's, I mean, that's a good thing to do, I'm not knocking it, right? But, like, that's not the only political language you need to learn. Um, there's also, for instance, the language and the rhetoric and the emotive style and the iconography of the black church, right? And that's something that obviously Obama was deeply fluent in and was able to communicate in, but was also able to switch tracks and communicate in a more sort of, you know, waspish Anglo-Saxon style, right? Uh, Clinton, I think, was quite fluent in that language, and I think Biden is too. And I think that that matters, essentially. And there's better and worse ways to do it. I think there's a way you can do it where you use language and concepts and even, like, speech patterns. Um in a way that's not appropriative and not borrowing. You, you can imagine it would be easy to do this wrong, right? But, like, successful national politicians, white and black, who get the black vote, show themselves fluent in that language in a way that, um, that frankly, um, Sanders isn't. And the, even, I think, Warren made a better effort. Um, but again, uh, like her approach to like learning a different ideological language was the intersectional one right and that you know probably only appeals to quite a narrow majority of voters and then this goes to an another issue which is essentially just sort of trust and comfort with politicians now what i really want to stress here is i'm again i'm not saying black voters think about trust and white voters think about policy i think all voters think about trust and like the likability and the relatability of a candidate, but they, they sort of have different criteria for it. So the fact that Bernie Sanders has sort of been dogged and he's an outsider and he's stuck to his guns and he kind of has like a grumpy old man persona 
that is trust building for a lot of, you know, young people, essentially, and young politically left-wing people, right? For the reasons I talked about in the last episode. But it's not fundamentally a question of policy. It's a question of, we sort of like just, you know, even if Bernie Sanders and Biden had exactly the same policies, I don't think it would shift Bernie's support that much, because I think they feel like Bernie would really fight for it and Biden wouldn't. And that's what they say. Whenever Biden comes out with, um, you know, I'll, I'll adopt this progressive platform on student loans or whatever, they say, yeah, but I don't trust him to do it. So what I really want to stress is we, you know, all of these different demographic groups are making calculations about trust. They just have different criteria. Um, well, well, what's the, the criteria for um, black Americans? Well, again, and I'm, I'm sort of uncomfortable with this conversation because I'm, like, trying to explain black people for them. But, like, listen, this is my perspective, right? Like, I'm white, but, like, I'm British white. And, you know, I came to America, I think, when I was 22. So, like, just an adult, if you want to consider that an adult. Um... And don't get me wrong, it's not as if we don't have racism in the UK, but it functions in a different way. And one of the things that stood out quite clearly to me, which I don't think a lot of white Americans, even liberal white Americans who sort of believe the right things, but that I think a lot of white Americans don't see, is how visibly uncomfortable they are with black people. Like, I don't want to call anyone out by name, so I'll try to be general, but the number of times I've, like, been in a group conversation or a meeting, and, like, some white woman who, again, is liberal and is a nice human being, and, like, you know, if I asked them what they think about racism or affirmative action, they'd have all the right answers, right? I'm not talking about, like, your Ku Klux Klan bigots here, right? Um, But, like, some white lady like that... You know, is sitting, talking, people are communicating, and, you know, a black person starts talking, and, you know, you can see there's just, like, the, just very subtle but very obvious tension in their bodies. Like, like, like they just, their spine goes a little bit stiffer, and they, 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 they sort of sit up a little bit straighter, and they're sort of nodding, like, okay, yes, 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 and just waiting for this person to be done talking, because they're so obviously so uncomfortable. And I think it's almost entirely subconscious. I don't think people are aware of this, and, you know, I have to say, you know, maybe it's true of me to some degree. I, you know, you need to be self-aware about these things. But, like, it is so obvious to, like, an outsider to this culture that that is how a lot of white people react. And I think it's, like, black people see it. Like, they're not stupid, you know? Um, and... You know, when I've talked to sort of more black radical people, they often talk about, like, Jesus, like, sometimes we just need to have political meetings where white people aren't around because y'all are so on edge. And, like, we have to spend so much of our energy, like, making you comfortable, and you don't even realise that we have to do that. Um, So, okay, how does this relate to, to Bernie and Biden? Well, I think something that white politicians who are successful with black voters have always done is shown that they don't have that. Now, it might be a sort of self-conscious affectation. It might, it might, to be fair, just be like, that's the sort of person that they are, because I don't think this is uniformly distributed amongst white people. Like, you know, if I'm sort of assessing all the white people I've interacted 
within America over my years here, in my head, there's definitely a sort of spectrum of, like, how much they have that reaction. Some, it's very extreme. And again, even with, like, liberal white people, it's very extreme. And some, like, it's basically not at all, or at least me as a sort of, like, outsider white person, like, I'm not picking up on it. Maybe black people would pick up on it. Um... And I think it's quite natural and quite understandable that black people would prefer the white people who don't have that reaction, or at least don't have it as much. And I think this is a key part of how black people assess political candidates, in that um, there's a really... uh, I forget which one it is, but there's a, a Dave Chappelle show where, and this is quite old now, I think it was like in his early stuff, so in the 90s at some point, where he's talking about why he likes Bill Clinton. And he's very straightforward about it. He says, I'm paraphrasing here, but he says, you know, to be honest, politics isn't all about policy. And, you know, people who think it is will throw their hands up in horror and say this is what's wrong with voters, but I actually thought it was remarkably sort of self-aware and like... This is how all of us are doing it all of the time, and I appreciated the fact, actually, that he was just straightforward. And he said, I'll be honest, I didn't know what I thought of Bill Clinton at first. I don't always vote. But you know what changed it for me? I saw him in a black church, sitting in the pews, shoulder to shoulder with black grandmas, clapping away, happy as the world, no sign of discomfort. And then you know what happened? Someone was like, oh, will you take a picture with my baby? And they put this little black baby in his arms, and he just gave it a big kiss and hugged it. And he was like, right then. Right then I knew that was my man. I think he used the N-word, not the, the my man, but I'm, I'm not going to quote directly here. Um, and there's something so powerful about that. If you live in a culture where... Um, sort of white discomfort is kind of the norm, right? And I think, like, we just don't think about this. Now, if I'm being really honest, did Bernie have that quality? No, I don't think he did. I think his approach to, like, talking to, again, to the black community, was much more transactional. It was like someone raised a problem of racism and sort of said, yes, it's very bad, Donald Trump is a racist, and, um... Uh, Here are the specific policy platforms that I will um, use to, like, address your issue. I will, um, you know, black people are concerned about police shootings. Here is my policy. And, you know, you're concerned about, like, this, that, and the other. Here is my policy. And I'm not knocking that. Like, they were good policies, right? Like, I'm not knocking it. And I don't think Bernie's a bigot or anything. I'm not saying that. Um, And, you know, like... Black listeners can contradict me. Maybe you feel like Bernie did possess this sort of, like, comfort quality that I'm saying. But I don't really recall that sort of moment of, like, Bill Clinton sitting in the pews with the black grandmas, clapping away like he just loves it and he he goes to these things all the time, which he was governor of a southern state and relied on black votes, so he probably did go to those things all the time, right? Um, Does Biden have that? He does. Um, he really, really does. And, you know, this is so funny when I sort of try to explain this as, like, a really big role, right? Now, did Hillary Clinton have it? Slight aside, not so much, but she had her husband, and her husband had it in spades. 
right? Now, here's what I was going to say. Now, here's a funny thing I've noticed. I've talked, oh, God, got to be like over 100 hours of conversations I've had about this topic. (laughs) If I sort of outline this approach to, like, white liberals, and I say this is, you know, if we want to win a national democratic primary, we, we kind of need someone who has this quality, right? Um, and they sort of, they suck air through their teeth and they go, ah, I don't think that's it. Uniformly, when I talk to black people about this, which to be fair, this isn't a huge sample size, this isn't scientific, but it's, it's a, few, a fair few people at this point. Um, I've had the exact same response every time, which is, oh yeah, that sort of reminds me of this. That sort of reminds me of my ta- this time my mum met this politician and, like, I asked her what she thought and it was like, uh, you know, they're not really comfortable around us, you know? Every black person I've talked to about this had a story that related to it. <laughs> I will say, also, um, a few of them, so my friend Ariel, who I mentioned at the beginning, said... Yeah, and it's kind of an obvious insight, like, don't think you're super clever for getting this. Um, like, this is something, like, any black person could have told you, like, don't think you're clever for having worked it out, which, like, fair enough, basically, right? But I do think uh, that's huge, right? Um, now, a lot of you all, I think, will probably be shaking your head and going, okay, I can kind of see that Bernie and Warren both you know, didn't speak the language of the black church, and, you know, they're not racists or anything, but, like, there might have been, like, they just weren't visibly communicating, I am comfortable being around black people. I am comfortable here. I'm used to it. I like it. They didn't go out of their way to communicate that. Um, You might be saying, okay, I can sort of see that might be a detriment on their side. But really, Joe Biden, this guy who can't make it through a debate? Are you kidding? No. um, Biden's good at this. He's really good. Um, And, like, he's not the world's best debater. That's not his format. But um, I've been listening to some talks he did in black churches, and I'm going to play you one of them. And I'm going to play you at length, actually, and I want you to really listen to this. I want you to listen to the way he establishes an emotional connection with the audience. I want you to listen to the way he reaches for shared experiences. I want you to listen to the general tone of humility in this. Um, And also, not just the language, but the pace and the rhythm of his speech is clearly suited to this style of oratory in a black church. And you won't be able to see the video, but you'll hear some applause. The audience responds overwhelmingly positively to this. Overwhelmingly. And I think that's something we sort of haven't wrapped our heads around on our side of the ideological aisle. But if if you're in this camp where Biden's victory is, like, fundamentally unfathomable, and it's got to be, like, an establishment stitch-up, and Bernie was cheated, or, like, some other, like, nefarious scheme... I want you to, like, really listen to this, because to my mind, this is very effective political communication. It maybe doesn't have, like, the the glamour 
of like Obama's rhetorical style, but he's systematically hitting all the right notes. So this is uh, Biden in a black church in South Carolina, ahead of the primary there. I thought about something, and I really mean it. You know, there is a, as you know better than I do, there is a, uh, a theologian named Kierkegaard who said, faith sees best in the dark. Faith sees best in the dark. We've all had some dark times in our lives. Many of you, very dark times. But I found that every loss that I've had, whether it's my wife and daughter being killed or my son dying or my two other children in trouble, I, uh, I found that uh, I don't know how people do it without faith. It's a great gift. And I did say I wanted to come to worship, and I mean it. From the time I was in college, the place I went for hope during those days in the early civil rights movement in my state was the black church. It's about hope. I'm a practicing Catholic. I used to always, always do double duty. I'm going to 5 o'clock mass today. I'm kidding, I'm not my mom, I promise I'm coming. <laughs> but all kidding aside, look, uh, there's a lot, there's a lot to hope for. I look back, Doc, and uh, think about the things that I thought were awful in my life and how they turned out to be a gift. I used to stutter very badly when I was a young kid. And uh, you all know what it's like to be made fun of. Uh, I learned to deal with bullies. I thought it was the worst thing that could happen. It's kind of hard to go up to a girl in eighth grade singing good, good, go to bed dancing. <laughs> Think about it. Stutter is the only thing we can still laugh at. If I told you I had a cleft palate or I had a club foot or I had a withered arm, no one would have laughed. But you know, the fact is that it's the greatest gift I got because it gave me an understanding of what it's like to be victimized by something you can't possibly control. Gave me an insight that I've never had before. It's the greatest gift I've been given. And so I guess what I want to say to you is that uh, we uh, are now in a situation where, uh, I'm going to get clobbered for saying this, but we kind of have a bull wheel we got to get rid of. <laughs> with the peanut. <laughs> replace with hope. Yeah. Look, folks, uh, I'll be brief. Some days, uh, some mornings I get up and you heard me say this when you invited me to speak to the National Organization, Doctor. Some days I get up like you and I wonder whether it's 2020 or 1920. What I hear. I hear voices of intolerance singing the chorus of hate exclusion, denial. I know you hear them too. You hear them more loudly, I expect, than I do. We all know when we hear that call, we just can't stand around and wish things to go away. We've got to get make things better. We can't do it just by prayer. You know, we have to get to work, and that's what we've always done in this nation. We've got to work. 
This isn't just an election. I think this is a battle for the soul of America. I didn't think we'd get back to, to be honest with you. You know, uh, I thought when, uh, I'll tell you a quick story. I, uh, when I got back from law school when I was a kid, I, uh, my, my city, Wilmington, Delaware, was the only city that was occupied by the National Guard since the Civil War because when Dr. King was murdered, a significant part of my city was burning the ground. And I came back to a city that was uh, in shambles. All the folks I grew up with, hung out with, worked with, they weren't talking much to each other anymore. Black and white were separated. And I had a good job with a fancy law firm, a decent law firm, good people. And, uh, but I found myself deciding I couldn't do that job and I quit and became a public defender. And I used to interview my clients down by the railroad station. The Northeast Carter, you know, I-95, the Amtrak that there. And, uh, and I thought maybe things were never going to get better. But literally 40 years of a month later, I was standing in that same spot on a platform waiting for a black man to come 22 miles from Philadelphia on the train to pick this white kid up and take me 127 miles to Washington, D.C. to be sworn in as President and Vice President of the United States of America. And I called my kids up, my three grown children. My son, Bo, who was the Attorney General, war hero, passed away. My son, Hunter, head up the World Food Program USA, and my daughter, was a social worker. And uh, I said, look, don't tell me things can't change. And I told him, I said, look over the Third Street Bridge. Look on the east side. That was level when I came back. Now it's prospering. It's growing. Things are moving. And I'm about to be picked up. And I told the story. So I said, don't tell me things can't change. But you know what? As much as that was true. I underestimated one thing. I underestimated that hate's never defeated. It only hides. It hides. Because I never thought, I really had to do my work with this in mind, I never thought I'd see a day that y'all saw in 2017 in Charlottesville. People coming out of the woods carrying torches. They're vague. Close your eyes, remember what you saw. Their veins bulging, spewing hate and bitterness, carrying Nazi flags, coming by the Ku Klux Klan and white supremacists. And a young woman was killed fighting the hate. And the president was asked, he said, What's your comment, Mr. President? He said something no president has said. Oh, we're going back to Andrew Johnson. He said there are some very fine people on both sides. No one, no president has ever made that moral equivalent. And that's when all of you, along with me, decided we've got to turn this god-awful position into something positive.
So, that was Biden, um, and I don't know about you, but I thought that was pretty effective. By which I don't mean that's the sort of type of political speech and political rhetoric that necessarily appeals a huge amount to me personally, but he's not talking to me or people like me in that context. So, a few things to just note. One is he's clearly comfortable using the language of faith in political speeches, and, you know, he's in a church, so that's appropriate for the occasion. You know, more generally to what we're talking about here, I think sort of the leaders of the progressive wing of the party haven't, aren't as comfortable talking about faith in the same way. I don't think Sanders did much. I think he had one quite strong answer at one point on his um, uh, Jewish identity, which was good, and it worked for him, but I think he, I've only heard him talk about it once, it's not his main, like, stump speech talking point. I don't, I mean, there might be something I'm missing here, but I don't remember Warren talking about it much either. And I mean, here's the thing, we, you know, are increasingly secular on the left, but there are still a lot of religious democratic primary voters, and as I said earlier, levels of religiosity are higher for black Americans, certainly relative to white, young, Democratic Party voters. So, that's something Biden had working for him there. Um, more generally in the speech, do you see what I mean about, like, the comfort factor? He's, he's very keen to stress at every point that this is sort of a venue that he's comfortable in. He talks about, like, his long history of attending, you know, the black church, and I've, I've no idea if that's true or not. I mean, you know what, I've no reason to doubt it, so I'll believe Joe on this one. Um, you know, I've been around, I'm sort of used to this and so on. He wants to hit that point. He also speaks directly to the fears people have about American racism, which again, to pick up on my point, um, you know, it's, I think if you surveyed people in that church, my guess would be, if you asked them about reducing student loans, they'd say, yeah, I think that's a great idea, 100% behind it, but it probably wouldn't be their main issue. Like, their main issue would be the sorts of fears about, like, Charlottesville and contemporary far-right movements and stuff like that, which Biden just speaks to directly there. Um, this is, Finally, as a bit of a side note, as someone who's trying to sort of theorise the politics of humiliation, I thought him telling the story about his stutter was quite effective there. Now, I don't think what he's saying is, I understand what it's like to be black because I had a stutter. He's saying, you know, the bullying he received from it made him, him more empathetic. And I actually theorised this in my humiliation episode, that talking about shared experiences of humiliation, which Biden didn't use the word, but that's clearly the idea he's referencing there, um, can ground a really sort of powerful politics. So, I hadn't actually heard that speech before I did my research for this episode, and when I did, I was like, oh, wow, that's really interesting, and it seems to work, and it seems to resonate. And again, um, is there anything in, like, Sanders or Warren's sort of standard rhetoric that sort of matches that? I'm, 
I'm not sure that there is. I think Warren was a little bit better about telling her personal story than Sanders was, but her personal story was one of sort of striving to get into the middle class, which is relatable, but I don't think either of them were able to sort of ground their politics on, like, common feelings of humiliation, the way Biden did that. Um, so I thought that was interesting, and it seemed to be pretty effective. Um, so the sort of $64,000 question here is, I thought that speech was pretty good from Biden. Not like it appeals to me as such, I'm not religious, for instance, um, but it seemed to hit the right notes for the audience. And like, hit them in the right way, like, it doesn't have the flair of Obama's oratory, certainly. It's not technically perfect, even, he fubs a few lines. But the, in terms of the rhythm and the pacing of it, there is this sort of rising and falling quality to it, um, which is seems quite reminiscent to me of um, the sort of oratory you get in the black church. Um, so anyway, the $64,000 question is... Could Bernie have given a speech like that? Is that within his range? I'm not really sure that it is, right? I'm not sure. And I think that's something we as progressives, you know, white progressives, are going to sort of have to think about. Like, as we run candidates in the future, if we're competing to, like, you know, AOC did to sort of take over an 80% Democratic district in New York then, you know, we can appeal to that audience. But if we're trying to win on a national level, um, we're going to have to have that range. We're going to have to be able to run candidates who can give speeches like that. And I'm probably the worst person in the world to think about how we're doing this. I'm not black. I'm not religious. Um, I've been to black churches on occasions, but only for, like, as outreach with political campaigns. It's not a world I'm super familiar with. So... You know, I think we need people who are familiar with that world working with us, and we need to sort of listen to them about, like, how to do that form of politics. Because, um, again, as I said earlier, you always have to remind yourself um, that, or we as white people, right, always have to remind ourselves that in many parts of the country, the black political institutions are institutions that have been grafted onto the Democratic Party comparatively recently in our history, and there is a specific way the party interacts with those institutions, and that it asks for the votes of their members, and there's a specific way that the members of those institutions expect their votes to be asked for. And there's no point getting frustrated about that and saying, oh, well, why won't they just listen to this platform about Medicare for All and so on? There's a lot of different groups of people in this country, and a lot of different strategies and tactics and styles and rhetorics that you've got to use for different ones, and that's just the sort of board that we're playing on, and I don't think it's either necessarily a good or a bad thing, it's just a thing, you know? Now, talking of sort of gaining credibility and trust in that community, uh, Biden has a pretty important validator there that he mentioned, Obama, right? And this is another big thesis that gets put forward as to why Biden so decisively carried the black vote, that he was the vice president to our nation's first black president. Um, and I don't really have a huge amount to say about that one, but yeah, that seems pretty obviously true to me. 
you know? Um, like, yeah, I think that definitely counts in his favour. And he was, a, you know, let's be fair, he was a pretty good vice president to Obama, at least, you know, by the standards of sort of what a typical president and vice president are expected to do. You know, he supported him, even though he was the more senior politician in many ways. He didn't ever try and overshadow him. He sort of, people say, you know, he was the happy warrior. He was always clapping back on the sort of, I think, often quite racially inspired, um, anger that was directed at the Obama presidency, and he quite happily did that for eight years, and I think, you know, one, the Obama presidency obviously meant a great deal to a great many people, especially black people, to see the first black president, but two, in a sort of more subtle way, I think a lot of, it meant a lot for people to see this more politically experienced, older, white guy really be happy to play second fiddle, you know? That's something white people can often struggle with, right? And I, I, that bought him a lot of goodwill. It just did. And, you know, I don't actually know to what extent um, Sanders could really have overcome that. That was, that was, you know, always going to be a hard circle to square in that, like, what can you put up against that? You know? What Sanders could have done, though, is talk about Obama differently. I was watching a press conference he did when he was still in the race, and someone asked him, you know, what do you, just like a sort of generic question, like, what do you think of, like, the Obama legacy and his role in the party today? And Sanders said, and I quote, we talk from time to time, but we're not the best friends. And I literally said out loud when I heard it, I said, you stupid mother. Like, what are you doing? Obama is beloved by the Democratic Party. And he's particularly, you know, you are going to have to win some black votes to win a national primary, right? Um, what are you doing? What are you saying? Now, this goes to, like... A sort of theory of change that, like, the Bernie people had that just was never going to work. This idea that we're going to, like, do a hostile takeover of the Democratic Party in a way that sort of replicates the hostile takeover that Trump did of the Republican Party in 2016. And I, I think a lot of people, consciously or subconsciously, sort of have that model in their heads for, like, what they're going to what they think they're trying to achieve here. And I think that's misleading for a few reasons. One is I'm not sure I would describe Trump as a hostile takeover of the Democratic Party. He was certainly very combative in tone and rhetoric. Um, and there was... But then he also just sort of showed himself quite a skilled transactional politician in making sure that all of the key stakeholders of the party were happy. Right? Um, you know, he made sure that, you know, this is the judges I'll appoint from the Federalist Society. You know, this is the sort of protections we'll go for for religious liberty. We'll get Mike Pence, who I know the religious right likes, on the ticket. We'll make sure the millionaires get their tax cuts. You know, so he just sort of made sure all the key groups were happy. Bernie absolutely did not do that. Right? He showed no ability or inclination to do it. Apparently, he 
you, you know, didn't even ask John Clyburn for his endorsement, which proved pretty critical for Biden's comeback. Um, now, I think getting Clyburn's endorsement was always going to be a bit of a heavy lift for Bernie, but they didn't even really try to sort of do that sort of transactional politics. Indeed, the message was, when we take power, all of y'all are going to get kicked out of your positions leading the party. You know, we're going to put our own people in. Well, that's not the message anyone wanted to hear, right? So, I think the, you know, we're going to do a hostile takeover thing, just sort of ignored the behind-the-scenes stuff that Trump did, and that, honestly, Bernie didn't. I think Warren tried, but wasn't successful. Now, I mention that in the context of Obama, because I think there's another difference, well, there are many differences, but there's another difference between what Trump did in 2016 and what Bernie was trying to do in 2020, and that's that the last president from that party was held in very different regard. So I think Americans often sort of process their political history through presidencies. So in a similar way in the UK, when we do our history going all the way back, we often view it as a succession of kings. There was King George III, and this is what he did, and there was, you know, so on and so forth, and there were the Tudors and the you know, Georgians and whatever. I think we sort of look at our, our politics as like, there was the Reagan era, and there was the Clinton era, and there was the Bush era, and so on and so forth, right? Um, and our sort of assessment of what's happening is very filtered through our assessment of these these men's personalities and how we sort of like them or don't like them. Now, here's the difference I'm tracking with that. In 2016, the last president of the Republican Party, Bush, was disliked and discredited within his own party in a way that Obama wasn't in... I mean, just wasn't ever within the Democratic Party. The sort of narrative that Obama is a neoliberal sellout, that is something that has caught on within Bernie world and it has stayed within Bernie world. Like, Obama is still resoundingly popular within rank-and-file Democratic voters, and obviously that's particularly true for black voters. So in many ways, Trump in 2016 could kind of run against Bush a little bit, like say, oh, I was against the Iraq war, which it turns out he wasn't, but whatever, he could say that. You know, I'm sort of against the Republican establishment, because the Republican establishment was personified by Bush, who, after the Iraq war and the recession and so on, the party had sort of turned on in a way. He wasn't popular with the Republican base. Nothing like that happened with Obama. The average Democrat likes Obama, and they regard his presidency as a success. You might disagree, you might think he was the neoliberal sellout, and Christ, there is something to that line, right? Like, there's a lot of Obama's policies that I think gave way too much up to the other side, but that is not how your standard Democratic voter feels, and you need to find another way to talk about it. And Bernie just got up time and time again in that primary and shot himself in one foot and then the other foot, just methodically, by just sort of accepting this framing that the primary was a referendum on whether or not Obama's presidency was a success. Well, if that's the framing of the primary election, that is an election you're going to lose. Democrats feel very clearly 
uh, one way <laughs> about the Obama presidency. Now, again, that, you know, given that Bernie, well, whether or not he's a Democrat or an independent isn't something I'm going to get into here, but given that he is, he always likes to see himself and presents himself as the outsider, like, how he would have messaged it differently isn't necessarily clear. I think he shouldn't have set himself, he should never have said he, he and I are not the best of friends, um, but, like, how he sort of ties himself to Obama, positively, that's trickier. I think Warren maybe had more of an opportunity there, because, after all, she was in the Obama administration, right? She was often sort of a critic from within, but you don't need to stress that. You, you um, There was a way for her to highlight the work she had done with Obama and present herself as a sort of perhaps more radical continuation, but a continuation nonetheless. Uh, and I'm not sure she ever really just found that sweet spot. And again, this is always going to be difficult running against the guy's vice president. It's always going to be difficult. But I think we could have done... I think we could have done that better on our side. And I think the sort of running against Obama thing, or implicitly running against Obama thing, is kind of a symptom of a larger uh, disease, that's maybe hard language, but a larger problem that progressives have in this primary, which I talked about last time, which is this anti-establishment narrative. Now, in the last one of these I did, about Bernie and Warren, I tried to sort of explain where I thought that came from, and give it the most sympathetic read that I could, but... You know, the fact that there are reasons for it, the fact that to some extent the feelings behind it are valid, um, the fact that there is a sort of def some defensible parts of it, none of that changes the fact that this just did not help us in this primary. Most Democratic Party primary voters, and I think probably especially older black voters, found it off-putting. Now again, Always when I talk about race, I try to stress, you know, I'm sort of talking the majority of black people or something like that. There are obviously some black people, particularly younger black people, who actually do quite heavily buy into this anti-establishment narrative. And look, you can do a, a sort of race read of that. You can say both parties have been complicit in American racism, and that's certainly true enough as it goes, right? But nonetheless, I think if you sort of say to people... Oh, do both parties suck? They'll go, yeah, they suck. Do they say, do you hate the system? They'll go, oh, yeah, yeah, screw those guys. If you say, do you believe the Republican Party leadership and the Democratic Party leadership are both functionally identical parts of um, a neoliberal, globalist, capitalist cabal, and that the only difference between them is a sort of veneer of rhetoric relating to the culture war. Um, no, your average American doesn't believe that. Most Americans feel quite strongly, actually, about the differences between the parties. And if you look at, like, for instance, polling on the negative perceptions Americans have of the politicians, and even the voters, of the party opposed to themselves, they have some very clearly negative views. You know, the average Democratic um, voter thinks the Republicans do not care about people like them. They think they're racist, they think they're bigoted, they think they're corrupt, you know? And so when you run saying, 
there there's no difference between the parties and you know we need to do this completely other thing that's just actually it's just not a message that resonates with a lot of people even if they agree with you on policy because as bernie people keep pointing out you know most of the policies i'll bracket medicare for all for a minute but most of the policies that warren and um sanders were running on were quite popular among democrats like, they polled quite well. Even Medicare for All polls quite well. It's just that specific part about replacing employer coverage that sort of proves to be the sticking point. Um, and I think there's just something, like, really disconnected from what's happening in our politics to sort of say that in an age in which we have really heightened polarization, really heightened negative feelings um, about partisans of the other side... Um, the, what the average American is crying out for is someone who's going to come along and trash both parties and say that they're both basically the same. Now, this isn't even a claim about, like, the substance of that narrative, um, although I think the substance is a bit fishy too, like, on a lot of issues there are big differences between the parties. It's just about, like, what works, it didn't work. And I think, you know, we're talking about race here. It particularly didn't work for black voters. I think a lot of older black voters have seen some real evils of American society, right? And they know what's on the other side. And they're under no illusions about how dangerous American racism can be. And they see the Democratic Party not as perfect, not as everything they, they, they would want it to be, not even someone who listens to them a lot of the time. But they see that as the institutional wall between them and the most heinous parts of this country who are coming after them. That's how they see it. And it doesn't play well for that reason to, to, to have a campaign whose narrative is anti the Democratic Party. Like, it just doesn't work. Like, that's not how they're seeing the political. And, like, look, they're right. The Democratic Party, you know, I'm thinking of Clinton and the crime bill and stuff, has had its moments where it's pandered to racism. I am not denying that for a second. But in the modern age, especially post-Obama, yeah, it is the institutional wall holding back the very worst of our society. It is. Every time Republicans get into office, they do everything they can to stop black people voting. Democrats aren't perfect, but they, they, they want people to be politically enfranchised because they'll vote for them, you know? And I don't necessarily know what the solution is here, because I think there are reasons that this sort of narrative has evolved, and there are grains of truth in it, but it is just not serving us. And it's obviously not serving us, right? Um, and I think... You know, it is going to be hard for us to, like, evolve beyond it, but I think we're going to have to. And I think we have to keep in mind, like, what we think we're saying versus what other people are hearing. So what we think we're saying is, like, the basic structures of our society are unjust and we're opposed to that. I actually don't think there's anything particularly wrong with the way I just said that, and I think the polling I cited at the beginning of this episode would bear me out that probably the majority of uh, black 
voters would agree with that sentiment, right? Um, but if I say, like, you know, there's really no difference between the Democratic Party establishment and the Republican Party establishment, and we're running against both, we're running against the Democratic establishment, I think what people hear is, I'm not on your team. Because, like, there is this thing, and this isn't, this is actually just true of all Americans, I don't know that it's particularly true of black Americans, um, I probably think it isn't, but, like, I think a lot of Americans, who are even somewhat political, sort of process their politics as, like, a team sport. It's like you're supporting the Knicks or something, you know? Like, you go, you cheer for your team, you boo the other team. And I think this anti-establishment narrative, what people heard was, I am not on your team. And so then, okay, then that means we don't have trust and we don't have credibility with the people who do identify as part of that team. And again, it, it's sort of a question of messaging here, right? Because if you're perceived as part of that team, you then have the credibility to critique the team. So if you're, if you're supporting a sports team, you know, I'm not super knowledgeable about sports, but like sports fans who support the same team will regularly slag it off to each other, right? They'll regularly say, oh my god, they need to work on defence. Why did they hire this person? We've got a crap manager. But it's, it's all understood that that's within the context of that criticism is happening because they, like, want their team to win and they're frustrated that they're not, you know? But if someone who's, who's not a supporter of your team starts making those same criticisms then that won't go down as well, right? That's when people will get defensive and angry, and instead of agreeing and go, yeah, we probably do need a new manager, they'll go, who, what are you, they're better than your team. And, you know, I think that's how a lot of what we were saying in this primary was heard on the other side. We are not on your team. And this brings me to the last big point I want to hit on. So I think, to sum up, the policies that Bernie focused on probably weren't the policies that were most on the minds of black voters. Um, and to the extent he didn't so much focus on, like, racism and so on, that didn't help him. I think that um, clearly Biden was sort of comfortable with a rhetoric and language that Bernie wasn't. I think that being the vice president to Obama certainly helped him. I think Bernie running against Obama almost certainly hurt him. And I think this sort of anti-establishment message was just the wrong framing. And I think that the message people heard from that, maybe at like a subconscious level, you know, we all sort of sort people into in-groups and out-groups in our head without even really realising we're doing it. But I think what people sort of heard is, I'm not on your team. I'm like your enemy. Um, and we sort of like got sorted into, like, the outgroup as a basis of that. Again, maybe, like, partially or even wholly subconsciously, but I think, like, that was the effect. And the final point, which follows on from this idea of, like, we set ourselves up as people who are not on your side, and again, in the context of a democratic primary, not on your side can have a sort of racial meaning, right? I think it would be naive to sort of think that, like, you know, we all sort people into in-groups and out-groups. How are black people sorting us? Are we a sort of friend and 
ally or are we someone who sort of doesn't know or understand them or care about them? Maybe that anti-establishment rhetoric helped play a role in sorting us into that camp. And um, to, to sort of cap that thought, um, the, I was watching, I, I, you know, I think you just have to just like, instead of theorizing about like why people voted a certain way, just listen to them in their own words, right? So there's, I've managed to find online a big compilation of interviews, just like raw footage that this local news station had done with black voters in South Carolina, mostly black voters anyway, um, in South Carolina during the primary there, just asking who are you supporting and yeah, just universally they're supporting Joe Biden. And the thing that kept coming back again and again and again and again and again was a line from Clyburn in his endorsement of Biden where he said, um, we know Joe Biden and Joe Biden knows us. And ah, that's genius. That's absolutely genius. It just sort of perfectly sums up everything I've just been talking about here, about his role under Obama, his sort of comfortability um, with black people and black institutions, his ability to sort of use a rhetorical style that's sort of suited to that, um, and this sort of like, are we on the same team kind of question, which I've spent, you know, I think Clyburn managed to put everything I've been saying in the last hour into just one short sentence, which is probably why he's the politician and I'm not, right? Um, and they, 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 um, a, 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 at least one in two of the voters interviewed I saw quoted that back. And there's another way you can look at it. You know, you, you might not agree and look, Christ, Joe Biden was not my choice in this primary, right? Um, but... Does that sort of make sense? Does it fit? And yeah, it does. It does. You know, like, it, does it make sense that someone would sort of feel, you know, from the black perspective, I know who Joe Biden is, and he sort of knows who I am, or at least sort of knows who people like me are, you know? Does that make sense? Yeah, it's not a bonkers thing to say. And it clearly resonated. It clearly, clearly, that line cut through. Like I say, one in two, I watched like a couple of dozen of these interviews, one in two people quoted that line back word for word. So it clearly cut through, right? And you can't, at the end of the day, you you, you know, I can sort of hear, I know a lot of my um, listeners like Bernie, I can sort of hear people saying, but what about the crime bill? What about him opposing busing? What about, you know, and I sort of, I hear you on that. I'm not saying those critiques don't have merits, but at the end of the day, if that's what cut through, that is what cut through, you know? And, like, like, we have to sort of think about that and, like, what we do with that. And here's the question I would ask you. In all honesty, could you have said the same thing about Bernie and it would have landed with those same voters? No, I'm not sure you could. Could you have said the same thing about Warren? Now, I like Warren. She would have been, if she were the nominee the first presidential nominee in my lifetime who I was genuinely excited by. Could you have said the same thing about Warren? I don't know. I'm not sure you could. Warren had did have, like, some support from, like, the sort of young, intersectional black left. I know I, I, a few black people I've talked to have sort of mentioned that within, like, young 
politically radical black people, there tended to be a bit of a gender divide, with, like, women going to Warren and men going to Bernie, which I guess makes sense. So she did have, like, some people who sort of felt like, yeah, this is someone who I'm happy to get behind. Bernie too, you know, but would that would that line, if Clyburn had endorsed Bernie and said the same thing about him, would that have cut through in the same way? And I think we have to be honest in that I'm just not sure that it would. And that just speaks to it. Like, who are the politicians who you can say that line about and it would make sense? So, anyway, I mentioned that line from Clyburn just to cap off that thought about, like, are we presenting as on the same team as the people whose votes we're going to need? Um, and where I was going with that is I think there's another big way in which progressives, and I think particularly Bernie, were not perceived on the same team that was incredibly damaging to them and doesn't get talked about a lot in explaining why Bernie didn't get much of the black vote, but to my mind is pretty huge. Um, and that's what went down in the 2016 primary and the Bernie or Bust movement. Now, I really don't want to relitigate this. I'm not really going to be trying to debate this on the merits of the case. I've said my piece on this one. Um, and people are going to feel how they're going to feel about it, right? I'm talking about the effect of it, how it was perceived, particularly, you know, for this episode, how a lot of black people might have perceived that. Right? Now, you've got to look at it from the other side. You know, I'm not asking you to give up a commitment you might have. Well, actually, I, I am asking you. I, I think, like, as long as the Republican Party is what it is, we really just don't have any other ethical choice but to vote Democrat, regardless of how exasperated we might be by them sometimes. Um, but what I'm saying is that's a disagreement we, we can have in good faith, and um, we can sort of shell, we can put that to one side for the moment. What I'm asking you to do is to step outside of your own ideological framing and see how all of that might have looked from someone else's eyes. So, if you do see the Democratic Party as the institutional wall protecting you from the worst effects of the evils of American racism, and if you are the people, a person who, you know, again, older black voters in the South, in the South are who we are talking about here, right, who will be most harmed by Trump's presidency, both because of all the cuts to social programs that Republicans always do when they're in office are going to impact you the most, but also because an increased national environment of racism is a direct threat to your personhood, right? So if you do see the world that way, and again, this is not an invalid way to see the world, it isn't, right? Um, how does it look when you know that Trump is going to be the nominee a threat of the most overtly racist president we've had since, what, Nixon? And even Nixon said that stuff behind closed doors, you know? Um, so maybe within our lifetimes, even. Biden, in his speech, said all the way back to Andrew Johnson. I'm not quite sure about that, but that's something that people have asserted, you know? Um, how does it look 
when we know Trump's going to be the nominee on the Republican side, we basically know that Hillary has won. Like, I think after about, what, the New York primary? There was no real mathematical path to victory for Bernie. That candidate stays in when they can't win, aggressively attacking the presumptive nominee all the time, using this sort of anti-establishment rhetoric for months. How do you feel about that person? How do you feel about their supporters when a foreign power, Russia, hacks the emails of your team, who again, just put yourself in this mindset, who you identify with, your team, releases them, shows that, oh yeah, it turns out this guy who's like completely attacking the party and everything, turns out the people inside the party don't like him very much. You know, this was a huge conspiracy, and it was rigged to the Bernie people. But I think if you're inside the party, you're just like, well, yeah, obviously the party doesn't like him. Like, he gets up on camera every day and attacks them. Of course they don't. Like, did they steal votes? Did they pack ballot boxes? No. And the people I know who work at the DNC, I've got a few friends there, they kind of, like, find this narrative funny that they stole the election. They sort of, like, I'm, I'm, I'm glad they think we have that much power. Like, I think they don't understand what the DNC actually is and what it does. Um, and this attack by a foreign government is done explicitly to help Trump, and I think this has been pretty well documented now in, like, the Mueller report and so on, um, by siphoning off votes from Clinton from Bernie supporters who are mad about this. And a certain chunk of Bernie supporters go for it, hook, line, and sinker, and spend the rest of that election just spending all of their energy screaming about this, attacking Hillary, stating publicly in every which way that they're not going to vote for her, and then Trump wins. Now, I think to some degree that move, that, that whole mess could have been forgiven if Hillary had won, but she didn't. And, like, how does that look if you are a partisan of the Democratic Party? If you do view this party as the wall between you and uh, yeah, the worst evils of American racism, and you were going to be the person who will be most negatively impacted by Trump winning, how does that look? That does not look like someone on the same team as you, does it? It does not look like someone you can trust. Now, I can hear people wanting to litigate this, and the, the stat that always gets cited back is um, it was only 12% of uh, Sanders supporters who, who voted for Trump, and that's quite a normal level of defections. It was, it's not as much as, like, Clinton voters in 08 or something, and, like... Um, I, I always feel that reply sort of misses the point, um, because I'm not talking primarily here about Bernie to Trump voters, I'm talking about Bernie to Stein voters, or Bernie to non-voters. Um, and I asked Angie Maxwell about this, who I think sort of is in a good place to give a solid, data-informed answer, because there's a lot of different surveys and estimates for this number. And she said, if you add it all together, third-party votes, non-votes, votes to Trump, probably about 25% of Bernie's uh, primary vote in 2016 didn't eventually follow through to Hillary. And that's decisive. 
you know, and, and in a sense, the Bernie or Bust people got unlucky. I think they'd convinced themselves. I mean, they now say Hillary was a garbage candidate who was always going to lose. But when I talked to them at the time, they tended to think Trump could never win and it was safe to protest vote. Um, but that, that, that's a few million people. That is, no, it's like, it's like a million and a bit, sorry. Um, but you know, that, that might, that was enough. And the margins of like Bernie to Stein voters or Bernie to non-voters were a lot larger than those razor-thin margins in the key states that gave Bernie the electoral college. And it's not unreasonable that people would be angry about that. And you might want to debate it from the other side. You know, you might want to say it was because Hillary Clinton was just so god-awful, and I mean, look, there were certainly problems with that campaign, right? Um, but, again, I'm saying a reasonable person, motivated by a reasonable and rational fear of American racism, might look at those numbers and go, what the fuck were you doing? You know? And... You know, again, I'm not really trying to argue the merits of this. I'm trying to explain to you how people felt about it, you know? And I I can argue the other side, right? I've, I, I did a whole episode where I tried to say I think this is the best possible sort of um, uh, way of thinking about Bernie's campaign, and these are the positives and so on, and, and this is how people inside this campaign feel and why they feel it, and there's valid reasons for that. And I'm not retracting any of that. But, yo, there are a lot of people who are still really angry about what some, a minority to be fair, of Bernie Sanders supporters did in 2016. You might think they're wrong to be angry, but they are angry. Still. I remember when Kavanaugh was appointed, I had a whole bunch of friends. Uh, black and white, actually. Um, I'm trying to think, like, what the racial composition here was, but it's, it's anecdotal, so it doesn't really matter. But I had a lot of friends who sort of have worked in Democratic Party elections and so on, who were just, like, p- particularly politically engaged, um, say, do you understand now why people were so frustrated with you in 2016, why we told you to just bloody go vote? And that goes to another thing that... Like, I think this is different, even from, like, um, you know, a lot of people said uh, Ralph Nader might have cost us the Electoral College in 2000. I think there's a difference in that most Nader voters sort of w- walked away from that. Certainly he got a fraction of the, the, the vote four years later in 2004. I think most Nader voters sort of basically admitted they, they fucked up there, right? Sanders supporters have dug in on it. And they've dug in in a way that I find basically intellectually incoherent. They argue both that it, it's a slur, there were no burn your bust people, or if there were, it wasn't very many, and it's not as, you know, it's, it's not as many as Clinton in um, 08. You never don't get that stat, even though the stat's a little misleading. Um, and on the other hand, that it was perfectly justifiable. Now, those are kind of incoherent, right? Um... And that if Democrats want to win, they have to elect Bernie because otherwise all these people will will stay home. So on the one hand, you're saying you never sort of tried to 
I mean, as as the other side would see it, blackmail the party with your votes. You might say, no, that's just we have to energise and enthuse young people, otherwise they won't turn out. But the other side saw it as a form of blackmail. Again, you don't have to agree, but that is how people see it. And so I think going into 2020, when Bernie's supporters were both at the same time saying this thing that you remember didn't happen, and that this thing is okay, and maybe we're going to do it again, I think that was profoundly damaging to trust. And there's, there's some polling, this, this sort of varies, where Bernie both has very high favourables and also quite high unfavourables. I think there's a chunk within the party, might not be huge numerically, but, like, who that left a really fricking bad taste in their mouths. And there's sort of a ripple effect, right? I think the people who were really mad about the Bernie or Bust thing might, you know, about 10, 20% of the electorate or something. It might not have been big, but then they're going to talk to their friends and so on. And I just wonder, this is a thesis, but I just wonder if that effect wasn't a bit stronger, like, in the sort of older black voters type demographic that we really lost, in that they sort of, you know, who are we voting for this time, you know? And it's like, you know, it, it, it only takes one person to be like, Bernie's someone who doesn't have our back. Or even just sort of give that vibe off for that to influence all of their friends, you know? And I haven't seen this point argued before. So if someone has an article on this, um, please do send it to me. But... I really think that one of the big things holding Bernie back in 2020 was sort of residual memories of the Bernie or Bust thing in 2016. I think it was that people... Now, one thing people have said here is that, like, oh, but that's irrational, like, um, just because some Bernie Sanders supporters did this thing, why does that mean he doesn't have the best policy platform? Yeah, sure, those two aren't logically connected. But again, all of us assess politics as questions of trust, of questions of character, and of questions of group identity. All of us do. Not unique to black people. All of us do this all the time. And if you think you don't do it, you're lying to yourself, right? And it just sort of set Bernie up where a chunk of the party, both black people and white people, actually, but, like, I, I, I wonder if... It ran a little stronger for some black people, but, like, a chunk of the party felt like this is someone who's not on my team. This is someone I can't trust, and someone who's not on my side, right? Not on the side of people like me. Where, again, like me can be a racialized divide, right? I just wonder if, like, that's one of the big reasons why he really wasn't at able to grow beyond his uh, uh, base in 2020. And um, that probably wasn't as true for Warren, and I think that was a big part of why she was able to reach voters that Bernie wasn't, at least for a little stretch of the campaign. But I think even with Warren, I think progressives have done a really, quote-unquote, good, a really good job of setting ourselves up as people who... Partisan Democrats feel are not on their team. Now, I'm being really hard on this one, right? And I know some people are going to really hate this analysis. And I'll go back to, you, you might not agree 
with the view, but that is people's view. And it was an own goal, and it was something you didn't have. We, do, we don't have to keep shooting ourselves in the foot like this. And so weirdly, you know, I'm sort of watching Twitter now, and I realise Twitter's not real life right now, but like, are the sort of Bernie world people going to come behind Biden? I'm getting sort of mixed feelers from that one. I think the hardcore ones aren't, but I do think there's also a chunk who maybe didn't get behind Clinton who will get behind Biden. I think it's kind of 50-50 at the moment. Um, I think, here's a weird thought, right? If you care about the future of the progressive movement, you should really get behind Biden and do so publicly. That sounds weird, right? Why? Well, for one thing, like, just the merits of the case, like, what what do you think progressive agenda is going to do if we have a 7-2 Supreme Court and a further gerrymandered and um, basically hacked system? Like, what, what progressive change is going to be possible if we don't win? That's one argument. But the other argument is, if we spend 2020 like we do 2016, every single day broadcasting how much we hate Joe Biden. And look, I've had my cracks about Biden too. I, I mocked him for some of the nonsense he talked during the debates. I've, I've criticised a number of times, like his consensus-driven approach and so on. But if we spend all of our time and energy going after him and saying, oh, Biden's... Sh-, I see this all the time on Twitter. Biden's sure to lose. He's sure to lose. Trump's going to annihilate him with a sort of, like, gleeful tone. Like, we're looking forward to it. People are going to process us as ideological enemies. People are processing us as ideological enemies. You know, I follow normie Democrat politics Twitter and lefty Twitter and normie politics Twitter. Like, there's a big chunk of them who are, who are convinced that a lot of people in the Sanders camp are just essentially pro-Trump people. That they're like fifth columnists. Now, honestly, I think that's unfair. I think the vast majority of even the most obnoxiously hardcore Sanders supporters cannot be said to be pro-Trump in any meaningful way. I do think that's unfair, but that is how people feel. And they feel that way because they've been given quite a lot of reason to feel that way. And so my point here is, not just on the basis of, like, what are we going to do about a 7-2 Supreme Court, but, like, how are... how are progressives going to win on a national level if we're not trusted by the electorate that we need to win with, or not by big chunks of it? And so that's why I say, if you care about the future of the progressive movement, let's, let's like, sort of publicly... You, you don't have to say anything that's not true. Just, you know, whenever Biden does adopt a progressive policy, say, yeah, that's, that's good, I'm glad he did that. You know, I'll definitely vote for him, even if he's not everything I want, right? We have to rebuild trust here, because we've damaged it a lot. If we're going to win in the future, we need the votes of people who, I will stress this and underline it, agree with us on policy, but have essentially fallen out of trust with us. They don't view us as on the same team. They don't view us as people who, like, care about people like them, you know, we will need to rebuild that trust, right? We, we will need to run in a way that people are seeing the ideas we're putting forward 
and the candidate we're putting forward as on their team, as people who can be trusted. And I'm sorry to say that that trust has just been really damaged. Now, you might say, but what about all that the Democratic Party has done to damage trust with young people and poor people and so on, and I hear you. I've done whole episodes about everything the party has done to destroy trust on their side of the aisle, but I'm not talking about, like, party leadership here. I am talking about you're just voters, you know? They're not the enemy. For Christ's sake, like, if, if the enemy of your political movement is a 68-year-old black grandma who lives on a fixed income in South Carolina, you're going wrong somewhere, right, if they are your political enemy. And you might say, like, they've been brainwashed and, like, you know, they've just bought into this establishment lies and we need to, you know, what a Marxist say, we need to wake them up to objective reality, but I think, one, that's a bit patronising, and two, there are valid reasons for them feeling like they do. Really valid reasons. And, you know, especially with all of the evils of American history with race and contemporary racism, it might behoove us to listen a bit first and to make an effort to understand why some people voting Bernie was just never something they seriously considered. We, we might do well to listen first, I think. So, listen, listen. That was all quite harsh, right? And I do know that a big chunk of my audience were really invested in Bernie Sanders, and I'm not trying to delegitimate that in any way. I'm not. I'm thinking about how we build on this, how we do better next time, and how we continue this movement. And that might be a conversation that some people don't want to have, and aren't ready to have yet. And that's fine as well, actually. I think we're going to have to sort of have it at least a little bit about the 2020 election. But this is a long-term conversation, right? And I hope you can hear in my tone that where a lot of my frustration comes from is a place of ideological sympathy. I want the Democratic Party to be more economically egalitarian. I want us to get away from this stupid deference we've had to market-based solutions, and I might do a whole episode on that at some point. I also um, want us to, and I think we are slowly, but, you know, steadily get better on issues like race, like gender, like sexual orientation, and so on. I think, actually, you know, the party has come a long way from even where it was ten years ago on those issues. I've spent a lot of my career working to try and elect progressives in primary challenges. You know, I've worked for the Working Families Party and stuff like that. And it's really rough, and it's really hard, and most of the time when you try and do that, you lose. You know, for every AOC, there's a hundred other people who try that same thing and fail, right? And I do get frustrated, not because I think the central ethical convictions of the sort of modern left wrong, but because I think we make tactical mistakes that make our own lives much harder than they have to be, right? And 
I, I want us to stop making them, essentially, right? And again, I'm largely not talking about policy here. I'm talking about the candidates we run. I'm talking about how we campaign and what our messaging and, and, and narrative is. And so what are my takeaways from this? And again, what I'm not trying to do here is like explain how black people feel to white people. Black people can explain that for themselves and we should listen to them, right? I'm trying to say like where I'm at with my thinking as a young white progressive on how we can do better in actualizing the sorts of ethical commitments that we have, right? Um, so what are my final takeaways? And again, you know, we're all on a learning journey in politics, and this is just where I am at in my common thinking on this. Um, what does that analysis of, you know, why Bernie lost the black vote, or conversely, why Joe Biden won it, where does that leave me in terms of my thinking about, like, what a future progressive movement that was capable of winning national primaries would look like? Um, well, I've got good news and I've got bad news here. Um, the bad news is about thinking about, like, why the racial breakdown of the vote was what it was. The bad news is that there's actually quite a lot of big, significant changes we're going to need to make. The good news, or the sort of good news, is I think this is all stuff we were going to have to do anyway. I think a lot of my like, like my recommendations here, are not going to be unique to black people. These are things we were going to have to do to win over normie white Democrats anyway. And I think doing the analysis of the black vote just kind of like underlines and like highlights that. You know what I mean? Um, so I'll split it into three areas. Policy, candidates, and narrative and framing. Um, policy, I don't think we need to change much here, and I think the party is sort of meeting us in the middle on this one. Um, I think putting policies front and forward that are really, like, young people exclusive, like student loan stuff, that can be part of the platform, but I, I think it's not what we should lead with. I think we get stuck in a bit of a negative circle where, like, our progressive candidates realise that they get their donations and support and activism from their base. Their base is young people, and what gets them excited is talk about college and student loans, right? And so they talk about that all the time. But then, you know, that's just less useful for reaching people who aren't as immediately impacted by that. So I think what I'd like to see is a simpler, cleaner, progressive platform, ones that, one that picks two or three really popular ideas and just runs with them. And I think something COVID's showing us is it might be better, instead of policies like targeted at particular demographics, like this is my policy for workers, this is my policy for students, this is my policy for seniors, this is my policy... Uh, for LGBTQIA Americans, so on and so forth. I think, like, big universal programs that kind of benefit everyone might be the way to go. So in, in the age of COVID, something like an emergency UBI, a lot of Democrats have floated, and that seems, you know, that, that's like an idea of what I would be talking about here. I don't know exactly, like, what the right policy will be six months from now, because I don't really know where the economy is going to be six months from now. But things that are big and universal, I think that might be a good bet for us. 
um, because it won't be seen... I, I think we can't be seen as just a young person's movement. Like, again, there's just not enough votes there, right? Now, those policies the Democratic Party has been reluctant to touch in the past because they have this bloody stupid, like, deficit hawkery got into their heads for a good few decades. Um, and I think, thankfully, that's going away. We're talking about, yeah, let's spend $3 trillion to get this crisis sorted, and um, you can quibble with the details of the bill, but I think the willingness to spend $3 trillion to fix a crisis is a positive step. I think that's, like, the direction we need to be um, thinking in. Um, and then, then the final thing on policy is um, we're just going to have to give up the, our, our sort of litmus test is Medicare for all. That was never the right policy to make a litmus test on, because I think a lot of people, especially when we're terrified about losing to Trump, have just got it into their heads that it's an electoral loser. I'm not even sure that they're right, um, but that's just not where we're going, I think. I think the path to sort of universal healthcare in this country runs through a public option. I just think that's sort of where our politics are right now. And that wouldn't be the worst thing in the world, okay? So I think that can't be the litmus test. Um, maybe we eventually get to Medicare for all by having a public option that becomes more and more expansive and less and less people have private insurance. Because, you know, hey, maybe if the public option is genuinely better than the private, then eventually you know, more people will go with it, and then we can finally do away with the private insurance system when it's only a small percentage of the country who still have it. I think that's sort of the road. Um, candidates. This is a very obvious mistake that everyone, not just young white progressives, everyone makes about politics, including, I'm sure, myself. The person who excites you most personally isn't the person who necessarily excites other people. Now, it, you can kind of get into this weird thing of, like, trying to guess what swing voters want, which isn't always necessarily helpful, but I do think, and I don't know exactly what this looks like, we need to do a rejigging on the left of, like, how we think about which candidates we devote our time and energy to, because let's be honest, we have a pretty poor record here. Like, the candidates we get excited by pretty uniformly tend to lose, right? I'm not just talking about Warren or Bernie, but, like, everyone got really excited about uh, Beto O'Rourke, um, uh, Andrew Gilliam in Florida, so on and so forth, um, Stacey Abrams. I know she had a hell of a state to win, but still. Um... I don't recall anyone really getting excited about Doug Jones, who took Alabama for us, right? Whether we can hold on to it or not is a different question. But, like, I know you'll say Doug Jones isn't, like, a progressive, but he's actually about as liberal as you could conceivably be while representing Alabama. We um, don't get excited by Sherrod Brown, who I interviewed on the podcast, who... Again, you might say, you know, oh, well, he's not a real progressive. He's only not a real progressive if you, you, you're, you're judging that by, like, does he buy into this anti-establishment narrative? I, you know, I researched him prior to having him on my show. He's got the, the 90th most liberal voting score in the Senate. He's not that far from Bernie in terms of how he casts votes. Pretty solid on unions. 
pretty solid on workers' rights. Says the right stuff on, you know, racism and sexism and so on. He's, he's solid. All the big votes we've had, he's, he's been the right way. And he holds down Ohio for us. You know what I mean? Like, there's just something off, you know. And I don't think we should be, like, ideologically, you know, neutral. I'm not talking about the um, genuinely conservative Democrats. Um, I'm not saying, like, we get excited about, like, fucking Joe Manchin and run him. You know, he, he really is quite conservative. Um, I'm saying, like, instead of who most perfectly conforms to our narrative, let's look at where are the liberals who hold down difficult states for us? You know, where are they at? Of the people who really seem to have hacked being a progressive and winning in a purplish to red state, where are they and what can we learn from them? You know, that's what I'm saying about candidates. And I don't even really have a particular candidate in mind. I'll give a good word for Senator Brown because he came on the show. But um, I, I, yeah, I don't think, you know, and this is going to get especially tricky if Trump wins re-election, you know. And this goes to narrative and framing now. If Trump wins re-election, there will be a very strong urge for progressives to say, see, I told you so. I knew Biden wasn't going to win. Ha ha, suck it, liberals. That is an urge you must fight. That is an urge you must fight. It is not a kind or a nice thing to do, and it will further alienate you from people whose votes you will need in the future. And I think we're going to have to have a really serious conversation in the left in this country um, if Trump wins re-election, which he could well. You know, I've said Biden's the favourite right now, but, you know, polls change. Things change, right? And it's going to be really hard to have that conversation coming from a profound place of distrust. And if our reaction to losing is to laugh at the normie liberals, then, dude, I understand the urge. Nobody in this world's life is becoming better as a result of following that urge, okay? Finally, with the framing, you know, we need to think about how we relate to the Democratic Party as an institution. And, you know, honestly, I think it's pretty simple, at least in, you know, in theory it'll be hard to do, is we have to change our framing so that we are supporters of that team. I know, I know that's not what a lot of you want to hear. We have to change our framing so we are supporters of that team. And when we critique it, we critique it from the inside because we want it to win. That has, has, has to change. Now, in saying that, I do not want us to go too far in the other direction and sort of buy into, like, this real belief in institutions and norms and so on that characterises much of the institutional democratic party. I've banged on no end about how our political institutions and norms have to change in a changing world, and will have to change. Like, like if you want big progressive change in this country, our current institutional framework is just not set up to deliver it. It just isn't. And so those institutions have to change, right? So I'm not saying we go to this sort of very thin, emaciated, minimalist liberalism that's just like, you know, all about just working within the system. And I'll leave you with this thought, because then what's the middle ground? If the anti-establishment narrative isn't serving us, 
But at the same time, the institutionalist narrative isn't serving us. What, what is the right thing to do? I don't have all the answers here. I think, like, the future ideological direction of the left and the narrative and the framing that we have is something I explore no end on this podcast. I think there's a there's a range of plausible answers here, and that's something we can and should discuss, right? But in this one area, I think, appropriately enough for this conversation we've been having in this episode about race, this is something where young white liberals could learn something. Not, like, appreciate the mechanics of voting, or, like, learn how to message it better, or learn how to present ourselves better to older black voters, but learn something from them. Something quite a lot of white people are reluctant to do. Which is this. Older black people have seen the American government at its very worst, the oldest of black people will remember a time when the government was overtly hostile to their rights and personhood, as a matter of law, right? It's within living memory when laws banning interracial marriage stay were still on the books in a lot of states, right? My read, and again, I'm always trying to say I'm not trying to speak for black people here, but something... I've sort of learned from the sorts of narratives they tell and how they process the world. And you can hear it in the Joe Biden speech that um, I played. He's just mirroring back a, a rhetorical framing that he's clearly absorbed from the black church, right? Which is this idea of the long, hard road to freedom, right? I don't think older black voters for a minute think that all of the structures and institutions of the American government are perfectly legitimate, or that they're designed with people like them in mind, or that they serve them effectively. They've, they've seen worse, right? They've seen that they're not. But they do believe that those forms can change. You know, we talk about Afro-pessimism a lot, but the average um, black person, according to surveys, a majority of black people believe that progress has been made on race, and that it can continue to be made. And I think the same thing's got to be true for economic egalitarianism, right? Those institutions and forms will have to change, but doing so is going to be a long, hard road, right? And we don't, you know, know how long it will take us to, you know, to employ the language of MLK to reach the promised land. We don't know that we'll all be there. Perhaps none of us will, right? And I think that's more how we have to think about it. It can't be the case that we think there's silver bullets, because there's not. I hate to say, if Bernie Sanders had become president, he would have found himself constrained by all of the structures of American governance that have constrained most democratic presidents. He might have got some good stuff done, I think it would have been worth doing, but there's no silver bullets here, right? We can't peg ourselves entirely to just one candidate and think that anyone else will just lead to more of the same. This is a long, hard struggle. There will be setbacks. Think about the total course of human history. I've been doing, like, what, the Assyrian Empire in some of my other podcasts, right? There was no light switch 
you could flick that would suddenly make that society perfectly just and egalitarian and free and fair. But progress was possible. Like, the empire that ultimately replaced them was better, I think. It was more tolerant. It was less violent. It wasn't perfect, certainly, like I always say, these weren't modern liberals. But look, if there's not just a light switch for ancient Assyria, there's not one for us either, right? This is a long, hard struggle. And what I like about that narrative of the long, hard road to freedom is it in no way supposes the, the perfection or even the legitimacy of existing institutions. It recognises, again, to use the language of religion, that the world is a fallen place. The world is fallen and people are fallen. And both of them have to grow and do the best they can to fight for what is right within that world. And um, again, in the language of religion, the Old Testament says, seek the peace of the city in which you live, and in it you will find your peace. And that's directed to the Jews in Babylon, who were enslaved by that city. And the, the prophet says, seek the peace of the city in which you live, and in it you will find your peace. And I think so many lefties, and I share this, are just so outraged by the state of the world and the current injustices of the world that it can sort of make you feel hopeless, right? And I think there is, you know, don't get me wrong, I'm not religious at all, but there is something in that, right? The idea that you try and make it better. And in trying to make it better, you're not dressing it up. You're not pretending it's something it's not. And you're not pretending that you can make it perfect. It is the long, hard road, right? But follow that road. Seek the peace of the city. And in its peace, hopefully, maybe, we'll find our peace.